0: everyone. Welcome to the Mythical Astronomy Daenerys Fan Worship Hour. Oh, no, it's not that. We're here to discuss Daenerys with an uh, impartial and... Fa- uh, no, we're not. We're, we're here to defend her honor. I always go back and forth with this at the beginning. Joining me is Melanie Lot 7 Say hello, Melanie.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be back on with you, David. And um, yeah, I am ready to talk about Danny and slavery and
0: yeah. Right on. Well, um, yes, we already we're here to talk about slavery. That's for sure. Um, this is uh, Danny's just to outline. Basically, her Storm of Swords arc has six chapters. Uh, the first one is the one where she is on the ship and decides to change course to Slaver's Bay. That's actually Jorah's advice, but they were going to sail to Pentos on Illyrio's three ships, and Jorah says, "Let's go to Slaver's Bay." So that's the first chapter. Second one, she gets an Astapor. Takes stock of the unsullied and the slave masters in general. Uh, it's a big horror shock for the reader and for Danny. Third chapter, she negotiates with the slave masters and then pulls the entire Jukari's move, where she turns the unsullied against the masters and you know takes Astapor. Chapter four is the taking of Yunkai, which they do with some cell sword trickery. If you remember, she invites all the cell swords out, including Dario. Dario kills the leader, the other two uh, people of the. Is it not Second Sons? What's Dario's company? Brave oh, Companions. God. I don't know. It's not Brave Companions. I don't. They're all. No, they're, he's
1: not, it's not the Brave Companions. It's not. They're all sell swords.
0: <laughs> but a Stormcross.
1: There we uh, are. Okay, Dario's a Stormcross.
0: In any case, that one they did through trickery. They they said you know three days and then she attacked at night. They took it with very little casualties. Chapter five is the taking of Marine, which uh, they do by sending Jorah and berriston the traitor Knights, through the sewer, and they um break out the slave pits and actually start a a genuine slave revolt. They free the pit fighters who are slaves and they join the fighting and they free the more slaves and they basically attack the soldiers from behind and they take Marine. And then chapter six is the Marine fallout where Danny is, you know, seeing what's happened and she decides to stay and rule instead of moving on. So we are going to spend by far most of the time on the first three chapters because that starts the entire discussion of Danny taking Slavers Bay, upending the social order, and how she uses her dragons and all that stuff. We'll probably only get a little bit to the stuff after that. There's there's less to discuss and also it sort of runs into the dance with Dragon's Arc where she's which is basically the entire dance with Dragon's Arc is her ruling in Marine. So what I'm saying is we're gonna Basically, get up to that Drakari's moment. We're gonna take our time with all that stuff. I've got plenty of notes on just those first three chapters, and then we'll see what we get to after that, depending on how much time we have. I might roll some of that into the Dance with Dragons uh, stream, you know, a couple weeks from now. So, that's the outline. And uh, yeah, uh, people are commenting that you're you're dressed like The Witcher today, Melanie.
1: There we go. I was actually just typing a comment back.
0: (laughs) And I was going
1: to ask if they had seen the video that you just put out uh, that is, can I say what it is, like, without spoiling it for everybody?
0: Oh, there's no spoiling it. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah.
1: making fun of The Witcher and just using it as, like, a Game of Thrones Witcher mashup. And it's, like, the funniest thing. I was dying when I was... (laughs)
0: watching <laughs> well i do want to be clear it's that great. i'm i don't i don't mean it as a sort of any slight on the witcher the witcher's cool no. and everything it's just fun <laughs> i i tortured it horribly and and rearranged all the plot and just grabs basically what i'm actually if i'm riffing on anything it's the fact that all fantasy uses the same archetypes and so you can turn any promised prince with dark hair into Jon snow or you can totally. you know on and on and on but obviously we didn't get a good we, you know, actually, Will Scolding would have been a decent Rhaegar. It was more the wig and the camera angle that ruined it. The guys actually would, yeah. have, been, would oh, have would have done it okay. Was so
1: bad, like everybody knows, the the wig was what really killed
0: it. It, it was disappointing. So, uh, Witcher is is the Rhaegar that we 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 uh, didn't get. But um, the thank you everyone who's watched the video. It's going over really well. I'm getting lots of nice comments. I do like to do absurd comedy. I mean, Monty Python <laughs> is what I was raised on. So. You know, it's kind of... My mind is bifurcated between very serious thoughts and completely absurd thoughts, pretty much. So it's nice <laughs> to, to do something ridiculous. I, I do have some more ideas to do more ridiculous videos, but I'm keeping all that under wraps. Uh, each video will be a surprise when I do it. So that's all I'm going to say. Hey, everyone in the chat. And uh, last thing I'll say before we dive in is that we have a new little feature today. If anybody wants to send in a super chat, I have sound effects queued up, so... I'll just put it at that. Once we get a Super Chat coming in, <laughs> then you'll see what the sound effects are. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to make it a little more fun. But It's super fun. Let's go ahead and get started. And uh, we are gonna go, um, the first two books that we covered of Danny's, I did them sort them by themes, uh, as opposed to the linear order of the action. Um, for this one, we are gonna go linear order of the action, chapter by chapter, just because they, each chapter is so different. Um, and we 've already introduced the themes, so now it 's easy for me to say okay here 's a little bit of empathy here 's a little bit of wisdom and judgment here 's a little bit of dragon identity, and we can sort of mix it all in at the same time because we know what the like the three or four major threads that we 're following are here, so if that sounds good. Then we will get started with Danny one again she 's on the boat, and uh, they are becalmed. It starts off with six days there 's been no wind, and Danny 's thinking about her love of the sea. She's expressing her admiration for fishermen. And she's actually thinking back to a discussion she had with Viserys about how she liked being, you know, she liked the fishermen and the smell of the sea. And uh, Viserys does the famous, you're a dragon, not some smelly fish. And then we get this passage.
1: He was a fool about that and so much else, Denny thought. If he had been wiser and more patient, it would be him sailing west to take the throne that was his by rights. Viserys had been stupid and vicious, she had come to realize, yet sometimes she missed him all the same. Not the cruel, weak man he had become by the end, but the brother who had sometimes let her creep into his bed. The boy who told her tales of the Seven Kingdoms and talked of how much better their lives would be once he claimed his crown.
0: And we have a super chat from Ball of the Bard 666. <laughs> Oh, it's a mini theremin. Where'd that come from? I promise I won't overdo it. I, I'll just put that out there right now. I didn't now. realize I promise.
1: that was a theremin. Oh, my gosh. I'm done.
0: Definitely won't overdo it. Anyways, thank you, Ball the Bard. Uh, did you have a question, Ball? No, she just wanted to get the party started. All right, so there we go. All right, um, so we just had, uh, like I said, Danny basically showing a little bit of perspective. And the key here is that she says, if Isarius had been wiser... And more patient, so wisdom and patience are virtues that Danny is seeking to cultivate. In other words, She's also realizing that Viserys was foolish not to see the virtue in "quote unquote" simple jobs like being a fisherman, and this ties into Danny seeing different levels of society and not thinking of herself as a noble who's above everyone uh, like Viserys does. So um, that's just a nice little bit there, and then uh, there's a little bit of strategy that she does. A lot of the stuff that I was filing under, quote, wisdom and judgment basically amounts to the way that she deals with Jorah and Barristan in this chapter. So there's a couple different conversations she's basically having with Jorah, and Jorah is expressing doubts about Illyrio, Barristan, and Belwas, and the conversation gives us a lot of insight into Danny's thinking. So go ahead and take it away, Mel.
1: Sir Jorah watched with a frown on his blunt, honest face. Mormont was big and burly, strong of jaw and thick of shoulder. Not a handsome man by any means, but as true a friend as Danny had ever known. You would be wise to take that old man's words well-salted, he told her when Whitebeard was out of earshot Whitebeard. A queen must listen to all, she reminded him. The high-born and the low, the strong and the weak, the noble and the venal. One voice may speak you false, but in many there is always truth to be found. She had read that in a book. "'Hear my voice, then, your grace,' the exile said. "'This Arston Whitebeard is playing you false. "'He is too old to be a squire "'and too well-spoken to be serving that oaf of a eunuch.'" "'That does seem queer,' Danny had to admit. "'Strong Belus was an ex-slave bred and trained "'in the fighting pits of Marine. Magister Illyrio had sent him to guard her, "'or so Belus claimed, and it was true that she needed guarding.'"
0: "'So after being becalmed for days, "'the wind picks up, and everyone is happy.'" It even says that Bellwas gave a great bellow and did a little dance, which is fun to picture. Um, and then the conversation continues. <laughs> the gods
1: are good, Danny said. You see, Jora, we are on our way once more. Yes, he said. But to what, my queen? All day the wind blew steady from the east at first, and then in wild gusts. The sun set in a blaze of red. I am still half a world from Westeros, Danny reminded herself. But every hour brings me closer. She tried to imagine what it would feel like when she first caught sight of the land she was born to rule. It would be as fair a shore as I've ever seen. I know it. How could it be otherwise? But later that night...
0: Later that night, Jorah shows up with more talk of Whitebeard, Belwas, Illyrio, and strategy in general.
1: Danny gave the dragons the rest of the salt pork to squabble over and patted the bed beside her. Sit, good sir, and tell me what is troubling you. Three things, Sir Jorah said. Strong Bellus, this Arston Whitebeard, and Illyrio Mapatis, who sent them. Again? Danny pulled the coverlet higher and tugged one end over her shoulder.
0: So the point I'm trying to make here is that Danny once again listens to good advice. Even if she starts out thinking that the advice giver is kind of just haranguing her or being overprotective. You know, there's Jorah's she's aware of Jorah's crush by this point, so she's factoring in that level of bias. But none of that is enough to override her actual good judgment. Her personal feelings are not... She's able to put those aside and still consider. And, of course, that's really important because one of the things we're looking for is if Danny's is in the process of attacking Westeros, we're looking for this moment where she realizes that using dragons, you know, just to conquer is probably not what she needs to do and will result in more damage than uh, she wants to. And so... She needs to be able to listen to people. It was a very stiff plot line in the show where she wouldn't listen to anyone. Um, and of course, it's ridiculous that Tyrion was the good angel on her shoulder when book Tyrion is heading down the dark path and will likely encourage Danny towards more violence. But I assume there'll be someone around like Missandei or maybe Barat. Bar- probably be dead by then. But hopefully there'll be somebody around to give Danny good advice that she'll need to listen to. Or maybe it'll just be her own good judgment. But you guys see what I'm going for here. She's using good discernment. You have anything you want to add on that? Me?
1: No. I, I was just noticing that there was a $5 super chat.
0: though. Oh my goodness. It's Alicia Patience. Do you think Danny frees the slaves to make herself feel good? I feel good. I don't hear that argument a lot. What do you mean by make herself feel good? That's, I would say, follow up and elaborate, but there's, I would say there's two reasons why she frees the slaves. One is that she needs an army, and two is that it, is, it amounts to bringing justice. We're going to talk about how she defines honor and justice and leadership, but there's a passage that boils it right down as far as what her motivations is. So uh, thank you, Elisa, and we will elaborate on that question here shortly. All right. So, yeah, okay, so the next bet here, what happens is... Jorah basically continues on, as summing up a bunch of Jorah, basically. He continues on about Illyrio and trusting people. He's a little bit pedantic, and he's suggesting that Belwus and Whitebeard, you know, might have staged the incident with the sorrowful man and the Manticore. It's an inside job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which Danny sort of laughs off, and Jorah persists and he points out: hey, look, these are Illyrio's ships, Illyrio's captains, Illyrio's sailors, strong Belwus and Arsen Whitebeard came from Illyrio. Danny points out that Illyrio is a friend to House Targaryen, but Jorah challenges that, and he says Illyrio loves only gold, cares only about himself. You remember that line where it said Illyrio would have sat on the dragon eggs himself if he had thought they would hatch, which I think is endlessly hilarious. And so he's, you know, uh, Jorah points out that Illyrio is devious and clever. To which Danny responds,
1: "I need clever men about me if I'm to win the Iron Throne." Sir so Jorah snorted. That wine seller who tried to poison you was a clever man as well. Clever men hatch ambitious schemes. Danny drew her legs up beneath the blanket. You will protect me. You and my blood riders. Four men. Khaleesi, you believe you know Illyrio Mopatis very well, yet you insist on surrounding yourself with men you do not know, like this puffed-up eunuch and the world's oldest squire. Take a lesson from Priet Pri and Zarozohan Daxos. He means well, Danny reminded herself. He does all he does for love. It seems to me that a queen who trusts no one is as foolish as a queen who trusts everyone. Every man I take into my service is a risk. I understand that. But how am I to win the Seven Kingdoms without such risks? Am I to conquer Westeros with one exile knight and three Dothraki blood riders? His jaw set stubbornly. Your path is dangerous. I will not deny that. But if you blindly trust in every liar and schemer who crosses it, you will end as your brothers did. His obstinacy made her angry. He treats me like some child. Strong Belwis could not scheme his way to breakfast. And what lies has Arston Whitebeard told me? He is not what he pretends to be. He speaks to you more boldly than any squire would dare. Mom. Sorry, hang on, just a
0: moment. So, picking up right there, let's see. He spoke frankly at my command. He knew my brother. And then Jorah says, A great many men knew your brother. For your grace, in Westeros, the lord commander of the King's Guard sits on the small council and serves the king with his wits as well as his steel. If I am the first of your queen's guard, I pray you, hear me out. I have a plan for you. So then he lays out the plan, and this is a pretty important turning point in the arc. So, Mel, if you are back, go ahead and read this paragraph.
1: Yes, sorry. Um, Just for the record, my child is having a play date, and um, they're doing some stuff, and I need it to...
0: Check off. And Mel, I, as I mentioned <laughs> earlier, if you need to jump out at any point, I can very easily pick it up. So don't even feel bad or hesitate. Okay. You, uh, you have small humans. Thank I do you not so have much. small humans. So uh, <laughs> yeah, feel free to jump out whenever. Just let me know. Gotcha. But go ahead. Sure.
1: Okay, here we go. Illyrio Mapadis wants you back in Pentos under his roof. Very well. Go to him. But in your own time and not alone. Let us see how loyal and obedient these new subjects of yours truly are. Command Grolio to change course for Slaver's Bay. Danny was not certain she liked the sound of that at all. Everything she'd ever heard of the flesh marts in the great slave cities of Yung Kai, Marine, and Astapor were dire and frightening. What is there for me in Slaver's Bay? No, An army, this. said Sir Jorah. If strong Belwus is so much to your liking, you can buy hundreds more like him out of the fighting pits of Marine. But it is Astapor I'd set my sails for. In Astapor, you can buy unsullied.
0: Mom? Mom! (laughs) Mom lot seven. That works. So what we've got going on here is essentially the change of the plans. And after describing how fierce the Unsullied are, and saying nothing about the cruelty that goes into training them, by the way, only, like, completely glossing over that, and he tells the story of the 3,000 who defended Kohor, uh, which is very impressive, blotty, blotty, blotty. And he finishes up, he says, that is what you will find in Astapor, your grace, Put ashore there, and continue on to Pentos, overland. It will take longer, yes, but when you break bread with Magister Illyrio, you will have a thousand swords behind you, not just four. There is wisdom in this, Danny thought. How am I to buy a thousand slave soldiers? All I have of value is the crown the Tormaline Brotherhood gave me. Dragons will be as great a wonder in Astapor as they were in Karth. It may be that the slavers will shower you with gifts as the Karthene did. If not... These ships carry more than your Dothraki and their horses. They took on trade goods at Carth. I've been through the holds and seen for myself. Bolts of silk and bales of tiger skin. I want some tiger skins. Amber and jade carvings. Saffron, mirror Actually, no, I don't. Those would not be free trade at all. Anyways, they sound cool, though. Slaves are cheap, your grace. Tiger skins are costly. Those are Illyrio's tiger skins, she objected. And Illyrio is a friend to House Targaryen. All the more reason not to steal his goods. What use are wealthy friends, if they will not put their wealth at your disposal, my queen, Magister Illyrio would deny you, then he is only Zarozo and Axos with four chins. And if he is sincere in his devotion to your cause, he will not begrudge you three shiploads of trade goods. What better use for his tiger skins than to buy you the beginnings of an army? That's true. Danny felt a rising excitement. There will be dangers on such a long march. There are dangers at sea as well. Corsairs and pirates hunt the southern route And north of Valeria the Smoking Sea is demon-haunted The next storm could sink or scatter us A kraken could pull us under Or we might find ourselves becalmed again And die of thirst as we wait for the wind to rise A marsh will have different dangers, my queen, but none greater What if Captain Grolio refuses to change course, though? And Arston, strong Belwis, what will they do? So Jorah stood Perhaps it's time you found that out Yes, she decided I'll do it so pretty exciting moment there. And again, I'm pointing out that Danny starts off, you know, uh, Jorah on again about Belwis and Arsten uh, but then he actually has a good idea, and like her ears prick up and she listens, r- recognizes a good plan, and he's right. He's like, let's te- let's see what Illyrio all about, because Illyrio kind of participated in selling Danny to the Dothraki. Like, why should Danny trust Illyrio, and think that Illyrio has her best interests at my- at heart? So. This is pretty smart. And, you know, the only thing is that, again, Jora doesn't tell Danny what the Unsullied really are and what goes into that. And we see in the next chapter, it's very much like a bucket of very cold water and, and blood that, that's sort of dumped on her head. Uh, maybe not the best analogy, but it's a big surprise because she's not prepared for it, so.
1: A bad surprise. Some surprises are
0: good. This was a bad surprise. It was a bad surprise. So here we are, we're turning around we're going to turn tiger skins into an army. Before we get to the next chapter, there's a cool little passage regarding the conceptualization of dragons. And yeah, go ahead and read this a little bit.
1: They're my children, she told herself. And if the magi spoke truly, they're the only children I'm ever like to have. He was always hungry, her Drogon, hungry and growing fast. Another year, perhaps two, and he may be large enough to ride. Then I shall have no need of ships to cross the great salt sea. But that time was not yet come. Rhaegal and Viserion were the size of small dogs. Drogon only a little larger, and any dog would have outweighed them. They were all wings and neck and tail, lighter than they looked. And so Daenerys Targaryen must rely on wood and wind and canvas to bear her home.
0: And so you can see a couple of things there. She's thinking about Westeros' home. You know, we followed the idea that home originally was just a safe place, the house with the red door, and Viserys was the one dreaming of Westeros. Gradually, they sort of merged. Now she thinks about Westeros as her home and going to Westeros as going home. And um, also, she's thinking about her dragon as her children. And she's also contemplating the fact that she probably will never have living children. And that sort of feeds into the idea that she's going to be a mother to lots of people instead of her specific children, Small humans, such as Melanie has created. Um, She will be the Misa, the mother to lots of people, all the slaves that she'll free. So um, she's pondering the meaning of the three heads of the dragon and what, you know, because that that came in the uh, House of the Undying. She got three heads has the dragon and she's kind of turning over all the undying stuff in her head as she goes along. And uh, we get a quote about what that means.
1: Your grace, he conceded. The dragon has three heads, remember? You have wondered at that ever since you heard it from the warlocks in the House of Dust. Well, here's your meaning. Balerion, Meraxes, and Vagar, ridden by Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya, the three-headed dragon of House Targaryen. Three dragons and three riders. Yes, said Danny. but my brothers are dead. Rhaenys and Visenya were Aegon's wives as well as his sisters. You have no brothers, but you can take husbands. And I will tell you truly, Daenerys, there is no man in all the world who will ever be half so true to you as me.
0: I love the little sort of insinuation in that line, not half so true as me, because that's about how true Jorah is, is like half true. You know, like he does like Danny, and he does gradually shift his loyalties over to Danny, but he doesn't mention anything Mm -hmm. about.
1: Oh, I'm not spying on you, and I'm not being, you know, rewarded for that or anything.
0: You know, Melanie, I was thinking about Jorah as um, as a writing device. You know, obviously he serves as an adjunct to Danny primarily. So think sure. think about this, right? You're creating the Daenerys character, you're George Martin. And mm-hmm. you, you need you need a one Westerosi sidekick, right? So occasionally pipe in about Aries or drop little bits of, you know, knowledge about West Westerosi Wester- history exactly. or something. But mm-hmm. instead of just making that person just like an empty just a suit or a patsy, he came up with Jorah. Like this very complex <laughs> <Freaky> ca- Jorah. <laughs> <laughs> this very complex character, really. Like I've been mm-hmm. paying a lot of attention to it. He's he's easy to despise. Obviously, he's got a lot of failings and he's very self centered. So there's a lot to like judge and look down on. But again, just (laughs) as writing a character, he's an interesting character and he has a lot of depth. And it all leads up to that moment where Danny has to decide whether or not to like banish him. And it's very it's it's a tough decision, you know. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Jorah, creepy as he may be, he's very useful to Daenerys. And once his loyalties do shift over to her, he's very, you know, he's he's insightful and he gives good counsel to her. And so, yeah, um, I, I love that George decided to, uh, he's so, just so good at making a great character. He made this character that you want to root for because you want to root for Daenerys as well. But at the same time, you don't want to root for him because he's creepy. And yeah, it's just, it's complicated. Jorah is complicated.
0: Yeah, and like, for example, the difference between how Jorah and Barristan handle the the apology to Danny after they take Marine and they mm-hmm. sling through the sewers, Barristan is very contrite and Jorah is not. And...
1: He, you know, I feel like Jorah is not afraid to shy away from the ugly side of things, the ugly side of war. Um, you know, he, he understands that war has cost, but he also doesn't shrink away from it. Um, you know, Merus and Selmy is somewhat like that, but he also has like, you know, kind of like this veil of honor that he he, kind of divides him from seeing like, you know, the common folk or the, the true cost of war in the way that I think Jorah sees it. And I wonder how much uh, Jora's own banishment has to do with that. Anyway, sorry, I don't want to get
0: too far off track here. No, I've been I've been waiting for you to get going. The people want more. <laughs> okay. The people love you, man. The people love you. Um, one other thread that we're going to follow through this book is uh, Danny starting to learn about her history. Um, it's very slow rolled. Viserys has given her a very one sided view. Um, he told her that the Mad King label was purely propaganda used against her father is just slander. So she's not aware that Ares was a mad king or any of that. Um, And her knowledge about that grows in this book and A Dance with Dragons. So there's a passage here um, where she's talking to Barristan. Uh, Excuse me, Arstan Whitebeard.
1: Viserys talked of those skulls, said Danny, The usurper took them down and hid them away. He could not bear them looking down upon him on his stolen throne. She beckoned Whitebeard closer. Did you ever meet my royal father? King Aerys II had died before his daughter was born. I had that great honor, your grace. Did you find him good and gentle? Whitebeard did his best to hide his feelings, but there they were, plain on his face. His grace was... often pleasant. Often? Danny smiled. But not always? He could be very harsh to those he thought his enemies. A wise man never makes an enemy of a king, said Danny. Did you know my brother Rhaegar as well?
0: And then regarding Rhaegar, and I'm just going to skim through this a little bit, Melanie, here because it's a long quote. Sure. "The Sword of the Morning," said Danny, delighted. "Viserys used to talk about his wondrous white blade." He "Said Sir Arthur was the only knight in the realm who was our brother's peer." And Whitebeard bows his head and says, "It's not my place to question the pr- words of Prince Viserys." "King," Danny corrected. "He was a king though he never reigned." Then he says, "Sir Jorah named Rhaegar the Last Dragon once. He had to have been a peerless warrior to be called that, surely." "'Your Grace,' said Whitebeard, sort of stammering, "'the Prince of Dragonstone was a most puissant warrior, but... "'Go on. You may speak freely to me. "'As you command,' he leaned upon his hardwood staff. "'A warrior without peer. Those are fine words, Your Grace, "'but words win no battles.' "'Swords win battles,' Sir Joris said bluntly, "'and Prince Rhaegar knew how to use one.' "'As a young boy, the Prince of Dragonstone was bookish to a fault, "'and this is Barristan talking. "'Excuse me, Arston Whitebeard. Arston Whitebeard. (laughs) "'He's in disguise, remember.' He was reading so early that men said Queen Rhaella must have swallowed some books and a candle whilst he was in her womb. Rhaegar took no interest in the play of other children. The maesters were awed by his wits, but his father's knights would jest sourly that Baelor the Blessed had been born again. Until one day, Prince Rhaegar found something in his scrolls that changed him. No one knows what it might have been, only that the boy suddenly appeared early one morning in the yard as the knights were donning their steel. He walked up to Sir Willem Derry, the master at arms, and said, "'I will require sword and armor. It seems I must be a warrior.' And he was, said Danny. delighted. He was indeed, Whitebeard bowed. My pardons, your grace. And he he gets off. So, uh, yeah, so we're getting a little bit here. It's kind of a one-two punch. She's starting to understand that, you know, Ares was a bit harsh. Um, but Rhaegar, well, yeah, what a fellow. You know, he was smart and he was a good soldier. So it's kind of this two-headed thing that's developing. And we noticed in the House of the Undying that she sees Ares on his throne commanding the city to be burned. And then Rhaegar you know, playing his harp (laughs) and uh, composing the Song of Ice and Fire. So, um, yes, uh, very much a one-two kind of a thing there.
1: Oh, no, like, I'm not going to be able to handle thinking about Rhaegar's harp anymore, you do realize. Oh, no, (laughs) that's (laughs) all I... It's not going to happen. I absolutely ruined
0: it. (laughs) We're heading to the second chapter now, and she's arrived in Astapor, and it's going to be a series of shocks. She's basically getting the lowdown on the slave trade, And the Unsullied, it's basically one horror after another, and uh, we'll start here. So, in the center of the Plaza of Pride stood a red-brick fountain whose water smelled of brimstone, and in the center of the fountain a monstrous harpy made of hammered bronze. Twenty feet tall she reared. She had a woman's face with gilded hair, ivory eyes, and pointed ivory teeth. Water gushed yellow from her heavy breasts. "'But in place of arms she had the wings of a bat or a dragon. "'Her legs were the legs of an eagle, "'and behind she wore a scorpion's curled and venomous tail. "'A harpy of geese,' Danny thought. "'Old geese had fallen five thousand years ago,' she remembered true. "'Its legions shattered by the might of young Valeria. "'Its brick walls pulled down. "'Its streets and buildings turned to ash and cinder by dragon flame. "'Its very fields sown with salt, sulfur, and skulls. "'The gods of geese were dead, and so too its people.' These Astapori were mongrels, so Jora said. Even the Giskari tongue was largely forgotten. The slave cities spoke the high Valerian of their conquerors or what they had made of it. So Danny is standing in the center of the plaza of pride in front of the slavers that she's about to talk to, but she's looking up at this harpy, and she's thinking about how the Valerians kicked its ass a long time ago, right? And then we get a bit of foreshadowing when the slaver tells Daenerys to lower her eyes. So check out this quote. I deal in meat, not metal. The bronze is not for sale. Tell her to look at the soldiers. Even the dim purple eyes of a sunset savage can see how magnificent my creatures are, surely. And that's basically the entire plot in a nutshell. Danny does look to the slave soldiers, but when she does, she sees them as a way to get that ugly harpy, to free the slaves, to upend the masters, in other words, to end the grotesque practice of slavery, of turning humans into, quote-unquote, Creatures. So, before we get into Slaver's Bay and the slave-driven society and economy there, and the Unsullied in particular, it's worth considering the context of the very idea of a Targaryen who wants to free slaves, since the Targaryens descend from Old Valyria, which was a slave empire that used the unrivaled power of dragons to basically grind humans into dust for 5,000 years, erasing entire nations and cultures at a time. Uh, none of this had been revealed to the reader yet. Uh, we don't start to find out about the horrors of the Valyrian Empire until A Feast for Crows, when Arya hears the tale of the first faceless man. And although it's not explicitly stated that Danny knows this history at this point in the story, we can pretty much assume that she does. Uh, the fact that she's aware of Valyria's wars with old geese means that she knows the basics of Valyrian history and would thus be aware of how Valyria used their dragons. So Tyrion sums up the Valyrian slave empire succinctly in A Dance with Dragons by saying, an empire built on blood and fire, the Valyrians reaped the seed they had sown. But here is the head faceless man explaining their history to Arya from A Feast for Crows. And this is where we really find out what they're up to.
1: The tale of our beginnings. If you would be one of us, you had best know who we are and how we came to be. Men may whisper of the faceless men of Bravos, but we are older than the secret city. Before the Titan rose, before the unmasking of Uthero, before the founding, we were. We have flowered in Bravos amongst these northern fogs, but we first took root in Valyria amongst the wretched slaves who toiled in the deep mines beneath the fourteen flames that lit the freeholds nights of old. Most mines are dank and chilly places cut from cold dead stone. But the fourteen flames were living mountains with veins of molten rock and hearts of fire. So the mines of old Valyria were always hot, and they grew hotter as the shafts were driven deeper, ever deeper. The slaves toiled in an oven. The rocks around them were too hot to touch. The air stank of brimstone and would sear their lungs as they breathed it. The soles of their feet would burn and blister even through the thickest sandals. "'Sometimes, when they broke through a wall in search of gold, "'they would find steam instead, or boiling water or molten rock. "'Certain shafts were cut so low that the slaves could not stand upright "'but had to crawl or bend. "'And there were worms in that red darkness, too. "'Earthworms?' she asked, frowning. "'Fireworms. Some say they are akin to dragons, "'for worms breathe fire, too. "'Instead of soaring through the sky, they bore through stone and soil.' If the old tales can be believed, there were worms amongst the 14 flames even before the dragons came. The young ones are no larger than the skinny arm of yours, but they can grow to monstrous size and have no love for men. Did they kill the slaves? Burnt and blackened corpses were oft found in shafts where the rocks were cracked or full of holes. Yet still the mines drove deeper. Slaves perished by the score, but their masters did not care. Red gold and yellow gold and silver were reckoned to be more precious than the lives of the slaves for slaves were cheap in the old freehold. During war, the Valerians took them by the thousands. In times of peace, they bred them, but only the worst were sent down to die in the red darkness. Did the slaves rise up and fight? Some did, he said. Revolts were common in the mines, but few accomplished much. The dragon lords of the old freehold were strong in sorcery, and lesser men defied them at their peril. The first faceless man was one who did. Who is he, Arya blurted before she stopped to think. No one, he answered. Some say he was a slave himself. Others insist he was a freeholder's son, born of noble stock. Some will even tell you that he was an overseer who took pity on his charges. The truth is, no one knows. Whoever he was, he moved amongst the slaves, and we hear them at their prayers. Men of a hundred different nations labored in the mines, and each prayed to his own god and his own tongue. Yet all were praying for the same thing. It was release, they asked for, an end to pain, a small thing and simple. Yet their gods made no answer and their suffering went on. Are their gods all deaf, he wondered, until a realization came upon him one night in the red darkness. All gods have their instruments, men and women who serve them and help work their will on earth. The slaves were not crying out to a hundred different gods, as it seemed, but to one god with a hundred different faces, and he was that god's instrument. That very night, he chose the most wretched of the slaves, the one who had prayed the most earnestly for release and freed him from his bondage. The first gift had been given. Arya drew back from him. He killed the slaves? That did not sound right. He should have killed the masters. He would bring them the gift as well. But that is a tale for another day, one best shared with no one.
0: So this is great. Thank you, well-read, Melanie. It sounds like Arya might like Danny a little better than show Arya did. Kill your masters, indeed. They're on the same page, I would say. This line encompasses the total inversion of Danny's use of draconic power, more importantly. When Arya hears about the extreme cruelty of the Valyrian Empire, she says that someone should have killed the masters. And by the end of the story, she's going to meet a dragon lord who uses her dragons to kill the masters. As I've mentioned before, I believe that the Others and the Whites are to be seen as a magical extension of the entire Slave Master theme that runs through the books. And Danny's defeat of the Others, which will amount to freeing the Whites from eternal bondage so their souls and bodies can finally rest, should be seen as the culmination of her Kill the Masters and Free the Slaves arc. But that's all in the future, of course, so let's jump back to Slaver's Bay... For Danny's first chapter there in Slaver's Bay, is in Astapor, is all about her, and we the reader, learning about the horrific way in which the Unsullied are created, and the general slave society which exists there. This occurs through a conversation that Danny has with the good master, Slaver Krasniz Monaklas, all throughout if you remember, the slaver is insulting Danny with incredibly vulgar and demeaning language, most of which I will avoid quoting, but I'm sure you recall he's mostly using derogatory sex worker terminology, he's insulting her intelligence as a Westerosi savage, that kind of thing. He's getting away with it, because if you remember, Danny's is choosing to endure it in order to gain an advantage, which she does by a clever stratagem.
1: The good master Krasnus asks, are they not magnificent? The girl spoke the common tongue well, for one who had never been to Westeros. No older than ten, she had the round, flat face, dusky skin, and golden eyes of Noth. The peaceful people, her folk were called, all agreed they made the best slaves. "'They might be adequate to my needs,' Danny answered. "'It had been Sir Jorah's suggestion that she speak only Dothraki in the common tongue while in Astapor. My bear's more clever than he looks. Tell me of their training.' "'The Westerosi woman is pleased with them, "'but speaks no praise to keep the price down,' "'the translator told her master. "'She wishes to know how they were trained.' "'Krasnys Monaklos bobbed his head. "'He smelled as if he'd bathed in raspberries, this slaver, "'and his jutting red-black beard glistened with oil. "'He has larger breasts than I do,' Danny reflected. "'She could see them through the thin sea-green silk "'of the gold-fringed tokar he, wore, he wound around his body "'and over one shoulder. "'His left hand held the tokar in place as he walked.' while his right clasped a short leather whip. Are all Westerosi pigs so ignorant, he complained. All the world knows that the Unsullied are masters of spear and shield and short sword. He gave Danny a broad smile. Tell her what she would know, slave, and be quick about it. The day is hot.
0: So this is a pretty clever plan here, and one that Danny skillfully uses to manipulate the slavers. However, we should also keep in mind, like I said, Jorah's given a very one-sided version of reality when he sold her on the idea of coming here. So she's experiencing a series of shocks and revulsions that she's got to, like, suppress and keep off of her face. That's sort of the bit that's going here. Um, so slowly the the full horror unfolds. I think I wanted to make a quick remark, though, about the tow car. If you remember, the tow car is a pretty clever thing that George came up with because it literally has to be held in place by one hand. So, like, the whole point of the garment is that you can't do any work while you're wearing it. So it's like it's a very good encapsulation of the of the class divide that exists in Slaver's Bay. And I just wanted to highlight that. Um so uh, yeah. Also, that's super sexy. Guys, that whole description of his breasts under the silk, I mean, that's just it's hot. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> Anyways, the day is hot. That's what I meant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's a clever plan and Ah, so here we go. We're talking about the Unsullied, and Danny first comes Danny's observation of the Unsullied as brick soldiers with stony eyes, and later she calls them dead eyes.
1: If the Unsullied felt the heat, however, they gave no hint of it. They could be made of brick themselves, the way they stand there. A thousand had been marched out of their barracks for her inspection. Drawn up in ten ranks of 100 before the fountain is great bronze harpy, they stood stiffly at attention, their stony eyes fixed straight ahead.
0: Uh, The reveals of the Unsullied training basically go from bad to worse to Is There No God? And here's the next part. They
1: are chosen young for size and speed and strength, the slave told her. They begin their training at five. Every day they train from dawn to dusk until they have mastered the short sword, the shield, and the three spears. The training is most rigorous, your grace. Only one boy (laughs) in three survives it. This is well known. Among the Unsullied, it is said that on the day they win their spiked cap, The worst is done for, for no duty will ever fall to them that could be as hard as their training. Which is horrible to think.
0: So, all right, right, exactly. We've got boot camp for five-year-olds. All right, that's messed up. One in three survives. That's messed up. Uh, It's not optional. That's, you know, they're all slaves to begin with. Um, And then it gets worse. (laughs) You'll notice the way that um, Krasniz calls Miss Sande slave instead of by her name. Think about that. Besande is incredibly skilled and is performing a very valuable service for Krasniz, which goes well beyond translation. She's a negotiator, a politician, and a diplomat, and she's only 10, and Krasniz can't even use her name. So just to give you an idea of like the dehumanization that's going on here. Um, anyways, we see more Misende mistreatment coming up, and then talk of the Unsullied's obedience.
1: Crasis Monaclus supposedly spoke no word of the common tongue, but he bobbed his head as he listened, and from time to time gave the slave girl a poke with the end of his lash. Tell her that these have been standing here for a day and night, with no food nor water. Tell her that they will stand until they drop if I should command it, and when 999 have collapsed to die upon the bricks, the last will stand there still and never move until his own death claims him. Such is their courage. Tell her that.
0: So barrister, excuse me, Burstyn, names it Madness as opposed to Courage. And Danny reflects that, you know, he was against this entire operation, which is actually the reason that Danny brought him along. She brought him to be a dissenting voice in the room. Uh, let me just skim this one. The old man had not wanted to sail to Astapor, nor did he favor buying the army, but the queen should hear all signs before reaching a decision, and that's why she brought him. So she mentioned that a couple times. The queen should listen to all voices. So I just think that's kind of a cool thing, you know, she brings along... The uh, team of rivals, if you will, is action is going on here, fans of Abe Lincoln and Barack Obama. Uh, So more good judgment and wisdom. um, And then what happens next is that Danny walks down the line of Unsullied to have a closer look, taking a moment to empathize with the fact that they have no protection from the heat because Danny's a decent person. She notices that they are of all races, including Giscari, meaning that they sell their own into slavery, but they all, quote, have the same eyes, no matter the color, and that they are indeed like one man, except for that they're eunuchs. So Danny asks um, then why they are cut when eunuchs tend to be weaker than men who have penises, I guess. Um, And Krasnus says that, yeah, this is true, but...
1: The Unsullied have something better than strength, tell her. They have discipline. We fight in the fashion of the old empire, yes. They are the lockstep legions of old gifts come again. Absolutely obedient, absolutely loyal, and utterly without fear. Danny listened patiently to the translation. Even the bravest men fear death and maiming, Arsene said when the girl was done. Krasniss smiled again when he heard that. And I'm sorry, I just have to say, I can just imagine that it's like the greasiest smile in the world. Ugh. Tell the old man that he smells of piss and needs a stick to hold him up. Truly, your worship? He poked her with his lash. No, not truly. Are you a girl or a goat to ask such folly? Say that the unsullied are not men. Say that death means nothing to them, and meaning less than nothing.
0: So some of Krasna's insults are actually pretty funny um, <laughs> in a certain way. Um, the goat one was, was pretty funny. And, uh, you know, again, he's a filthy slaver, but I like the writing here anyways. The conceit of him hurling insults that he doesn't think Danny can understand and that he doesn't actually want translated is actually a really brilliant writing choice because it shows us how vain he is. You're like, he he can't just keep it in. He's got to, like, run his mouth and stuff, even though it's it's serving no purpose at all. It's just so that he can, like, hurl insults that he won't actually go anywhere. So it just kind of shows us the ego and the arrogance of the slaver, as well as being a little bit ridiculous. And I just, it's like that. But uh, what's not funny is when Krasnus begins abusing the Unsullied, of course, to demonstrate their pain tolerance and obedience. And... I will spare you the nipple wounding quote. Don't worry, we're not going to read that. Uh, But it's important to note that Danny has difficulty controlling herself when he begins to whip the unsullied. Oh, we had a super chat, actually. Let me just back up real quick. Okay, sure, yeah. (laughs) It's from Christopher who says, Thanks for the great content. Thank you, Christopher. (laughs) Oh, did the bird like that one?
1: (laughs) Apparently, apparently the bird also liked that, yes.
0: I had, Goose was copying the, the, I'll get him on a stream one time, but go ahead.
1: You totally should. Going forward. He stopped before a thick-set man who had the look of Lazar about him and brought his whip up sharply, laying a line of blood across one copper cheek. The eunuch blinked and stood there, bleeding. Would you like another? asked Krasnus. If it please, your worship. It was hard to pretend not to understand. Danny laid a hand on Krasnus' arm before he could raise the whip again. Tell the good master that I see how strong his Unsullied are, and how bravely they suffer the pain.
0: So George is hitting several beats throughout this discussion, if you notice. Danny's empathy and Danny's wisdom uh, compared to the slaver's cruelty and the suffering of the slaves themselves. Round and round, all those points are being hit throughout this entire conversation. Um, The slaver begins maiming another Unsullied, and Danny cries out, What is he doing to Missande?" And what Krasnus is doing is demonstrating that the Unsullied feel almost no pain because, as it turns out, they have been drinking the wine of courage, which is no true wine at all, but made from a deadly nightshade, bloodfly larva, black lortus root, and many secret things. Sorry, I'm like, I've got Roitotrice's, like, very strange Kaskari accent in my head. I've been listening.
1: Bloodfly larvae.
0: Mmm, <laughs> sounds good. They drink it with every meal from the day they are cut and with each passing year. They feel less and less. It makes them fearless in battle, nor can they be tortured. Krasnus goes on about how the Unsullied have no penis as well as no testicles and that they therefore not tempted by sex. The dehumanization of the Unsullied is what's emphasized here, with Krasnus saying that they are completely wed to their swords in a way that no other man can be, and he later compares them to Valyrian steel, beaten and hammered and folded thousands of times. Uh, that the Unsullied, they're not tempted by loot or plunder or rape, and that they don't even get to have names. You recall that they have to draw their names from a hat every day, Names like Grey Worm, Blue Toad, Brown Flea, Black Rat. And this is done because it, quote, reminds them they're like vermin. Then comes even more horror. And we're going to read this one just to reconnect with the visceral feeling of revulsion that we are supposed to feel along with Danny as she makes her next moves.
1: More madness, said Arsten when he heard. How can any man possibly remember a new name every day? Those who cannot are called in training along with those who cannot run all day in a full pack, scale a mountain in the black of night, walk across a bed of coals, or slay an infant. Danny's mouth surely twisted at that. Did he see? Or is he blind as well as cruel? She turned away quickly, trying to keep her face a mask, until she heard the translation. Only then did she allow herself to say, "'Whose infants do they slay?' To win his spiked cap, an unsullied must go to the slave-marts with a silver mark, Find some wailing newborn and kill it before its mother's eyes. In this way, we make certain that there's no weakness left in them. She was feeling faint. The heat, she tried to tell herself. You take a babe from its mother's arms, kill it as she watches and pay for her with a silver... Pay her for... Oh gosh, sorry. I just lost my spot. I went all the way down to the bottom. Um,
0: It's only one paragraph. I'll just pick it up. When the translation was made for him, Krasniz laughed aloud. What a soft, mewling fool this one is. Tell the W-word of Westeros that the mark is for the child's owner, not the mother. The Unsullied are not permitted to steal. He tapped his whip against his leg. Tell her that few ever fail that test. The dogs are harder for them, it must be said. We give each boy a puppy on the day he is cut. At the end of the first year, he is required to strangle it. Any who cannot are killed and fed to the surviving dogs. It makes for a good strong lesson we find. Barf, barf, barf. Okay, so here we have the full horror of the Unsullied laid bare. Ask yourself how you feel right now. You know? Nauseated? Right. And now check out Barristan's response and take careful note of what Danny's very next words are after hearing about these final details of the vile practice that is making of the Unsullied. I noticed on the last reread that she is hatching a plan to free the Unsullied literally the second after she hears all this crap. So go ahead and read this next bit.
1: Arson Whitebeard tapped the end of his staff on the bricks as he listened to that. Tap, tap, tap. Slow and steady. Tap, tap, tap. Danny saw him turn his eyes away as if he could not bear to look at Krasnus any longer. The good master has said that these eunuchs cannot be tempted with coin or flesh, Danny told the girl. But if some enemy of mine should offer them freedom for betraying me, they would kill him out of hand and bring her his head, tell her that, the slaver answered. Other slaves may steal and hoard up silver in hopes of buying freedom, but an unsullied would not take it if the little mare offered it as a gift. They have no life outside their duty. They are soldiers and that is all. It is soldiers I need, Danny admitted. Tell her it is well, she came to Astapor then. Ask her how large an army she wishes to buy. How many Unsullied
0: do you have to sell? So she phrases her first question as, what if someone offers them freedom? Will they betray me? But what she's really asking is the reverse. If I offer them freedom, will they betray you? So hearing that they will not, she realizes she likely has to find a way to, quote, buy them in order to free them, which is, again, already what she's thinking about. So her next question is, how many Unsullied do you have to sell? Because she is going to want to buy them all, to free them all. As the conversation is ending, it says Danny knew she would take more than 100 if she took any at all. Um, and then, uh, real quick, we had a super chat from Pat Riley, who says, but, but, but she burns the slaver. Yes, she does. We're going to get to that dramatic reading in just a minute, yes we are. Thank you, though. <laughs> all right. So, finally, to reinforce the idea that she is serious, Danny says, remind your good master of who I am. Remind him I am Daenerys Stormborn, mother of dragons, the unburnt, true-born queen of the seven kings of Westeros. My blood is the blood of Aegon the Conqueror and of old Valeria before him. And it says, yet the her words did not move, the plump, perfumed slaver, even when rendered in his own ugly tongue. Old Gis ruled an empire when the Valerians were still f***ing sheep, he growled at the poor little scribe, and we are the sons of the Harpy. So nice little pissing match there, and it kind of reinforces the dragon versus harpy Valeria versus Gis theme that is running through these chapters. Uh, In the past, the dragon and the harpy both played the game of thrones, if you will, causing immense suffering for everyone else. But now, Danny is indeed breaking that wheel, if you will, by being an aspiring high lord who uses their power to aid people. So we can feel good rooting for the dragon here in round two, actually round six, because there was five. Fiver. Can
1: I yeah. Can I break yeah. in just for a second here and just point out, okay, so something that you've been talking about on these Danny streams is how perceptive she is. And I think that um, this is a really good example, another good example of how perceptive Danny is versus how not perceptive the slaver is. Because the slaver hasn't figured out that she can speak his language, that she knows every single word that he's saying. You know, he... a a perceptive person might have a chance at noticing those things, especially when, you know, her face kind of betrays her in one of the quotes that we just read. Oh, hi. And, um, I, I think this is like another really good way that George is pointing out that, you know, Danny is very perceptive and in this case, kind of tricky too.
0: Yep. She plays it really well. And we're going to talk about exactly what she's doing, but she's, she's giving the, uh, the slavers, a certain idea of her which she's going to use to their advantage. But, 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 people are hitting the buzzer today. Dede Volano. <laughs> Hi, Melanie. Hi, LaMelle. Great read. Thank you. Thank you. And we've got Sheila Hamilton, a little offering to my favorite dude. I'm assuming the burb is the favorite dude, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I can even change the sound of this thing. That super chat was a little, little bigger, so we gotta
1: Ramp it up.
0: All right, that's enough. <laughs> so let's give a quick shout out for Miss Sande's translation skills here. She turns, I will feed her jellied dog brains and a fine rich stew of red octopus and unborn puppy, he wiped his lips, into, many delicious dishes can be had here, he says. Okay, she turns, Tell her how pretty the pyramids are at night, the slaver growled. Tell her I will lick honey off her breasts, or allow her to lick honey off of mine if she prefers. And Miss Anday turns that into, Astapor is most beautiful at dusk, your grace, said the slave girl. The good masters light silk lanterns on every terrace, so all the pyramids glow with colored lights. Pleasure barges ply the worm, playing soft music and calling at the little islands for food and wine and other delights. So, it's... <laughs> uh, just I just
1: uh, <laughs> I mean for a 10-year-old she is like a prodigy to know num- the, all those languages and to be such an excellent diplomat like seriously this child is remarkable and does not get enough credit and in a way I'm kind of sad that the show aged her up so much because I think it takes away some of the extraordinary aspects of her character because I think that she is amazing and uh, you know, probably is one of my favorite B level characters.
0: Yeah, she really is. It might be slightly unrealistic how much, how capable she is for a 10 year old, but I don't know. Maybe somewhere out there. Prodigy level. Yeah, yeah, she is a prodigy level. I mean, I guess those people do exist. She's like Doogie Hauser. She's damn smart. <laughs> she is amazing, very good character. Totally different as far as on the show and the book, but yeah, there you go. So, uh, real quick, I will just say I saw a comment about Patreon names. Guys, I have, I'm cooking up a little something called a Patreon music video. It's one of my, like, seven-minute spacey sound effect music acid trip tracks that I have on my SoundCloud. I took a good one, and I took some, some images from the show that I like and some starry, spacey footage and scrambled it together. And basically what I'm saying is that if you are a patron of mine, um, message me and make sure that I have your nickname... And if you can, would be super helpful. You can actually change your Patreon title to, to your actual nickname. Because I have this giant document, Melanie, that's like a list of every patron mm-hmm. and then a list of all the nicknames. And I constantly have to cross-reference it. And I am not very good at that kind of stuff. So if you can change your Patreon name to your Patreon name, that will help me. And if you can send me a little message. No, I'm not a SoundCloud rapper. I'm a SoundCloud effects pyromaniac. But like I said, send in your names so that I can cuz what on the music video I'm going to I'm going to read them over in a spooky space voice while the images play and I want to get everybody a chance to be on there. So, in any case, back to the programming. Uh yes, yeah, so real diplomatic skill from Misende. It's the opposite of an anger translator, right?
1: The positive <laughs> calm translator, <laughs> like taking ugly messages and making them beautiful.
0: Yeah, that that last one was a real <laughs> it was a real miracle. Uh, let's see, the part of the scene, this part of the scene, rather, closes with yet more examples of the slaver's cruelty and Danny continuing to manipulate him with her ruse.
1: Ask her if she wishes to view our fighting pits, Krasneth added. Dokor's pit has a fine folly schedule for the evening. A bear and three small boys. One One boy will be rolled in honey, one in blood, and one in rotting fish, and she may wager on which the bear will eat first. Tap, 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 Danny heard. Arston Whitebeard's face was still, but his staff beat out his rage. Ta, ta, ta. She made herself smile. I have my own bear on Valerian, she told the translator, and he may well eat me if I do not return to him. See, said Krasneth when her words were translated, it is not the woman who decides, it is this man she runs to as ever. Thank the good master for his patient kindness, Danny said, and tell him that I will think on all I learned here. I love that, like, passive-aggressive
0: ending line. Oh, aha. I knew there was a man that she runs to. Uh. And Danny's naughty doesn't even flinch. She says, thank the good master for his patient kindness and tell him I will think on all I learned here. So Danny's just playing it straight face. She's just absorbed all this horror. So keep in mind, like, inside of her is a is a raging fire, of anger and disgust and she's still playing it straight. I don't think I could have done this, Melanie. Um, I'm way too impatient and like trans transparent as far as my emotions go. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. There's,
1: there's no way that I would have been able to handle that situation without like wanting to just like jump across and strangle the guy. (laughs) Like, Oh, seeing that much injustice. And yeah. Uh, Slavery and I do not mix too well. Not at all. And yeah, Danny's, patience and restraint are a plus plus. Cause yeah, I think that, I mean, like what is the chat think? Do you think that you could watch that happen in front of you? Watch a guy's nipple get cut off and a guy get lashed with a whip and just like stand there and be okay with it. Um, it takes a great amount of restraint. I mean, Danny's okay with it. I think because she understands that she has a greater purpose here. Um, and those actions would counter her plan, but still like, I don't
0: know if I'd have that much restraint, even if I did have a bigger plan in mind. It's definitely uh, not Viserys. It's not even Fagon, pick up my chess pieces, dwarf. It's none of that. There's no, like, <laughs> it's not, she doesn't, like, she has a, a temper, but it's like a slow burn temper. It's more mm-hmm. of the anger against injustice as opposed to a momentary, like, fits of rage. Like, she really doesn't, pick up my pieces, dwarf. I just, sorry. He does, she, doesn't, she doesn't do that. She doesn't flip the chessboard, so... Truegon, Hashtag Trugon. I, 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 <laughs> did you like my Fagon cameo in the uh, Rhaegar show video? I thought that was pretty good. That was good
1: stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so, like I said, she is pretty impressive. And then as they're leaving the Plaza of Pride, there's a nice beat that highlights Danny's sense of the weight of the situation. And uh, Jogo says, "'Make way!' Jogo shouted as he rode before her litter. "'Make way for the Mother of Dragons!' But when he uncoiled the great silver-handled whip that Danny had given him and made to crack it in the air, she leaned out and told him nay. Not in this place, blood of my blood, she said in his own tongue. These bricks have heard too much of the sound of whips. So just thought that was a nice little, you know, just nicely written little bit to where she's like, no, they don't. we don't even want to hear the sound of a whip here. Because the whip is very much serving as a symbol. Um, she she considers it when she holds it. Krasnus is holding it. It's made of dragon bone, and it has these gold talons, which are called the harpy's fingers. And, Melanie, I was thinking about that symbolism for a second. Mm-hmm. Valeria was a slave empire. Mm-hmm. Gis was a slave empire. Mm-hmm. And so we have this slave whip made up of dragon bone and the harpy claws. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a symbol of, of both of that, yeah. all that history. But then here comes a different kind of dragon who tosses it and, and drops it in the dust. Um, so...
1: Absolutely, a dragon that ha- is, you know, has talons and is made well has, you know, dragon bone inside of it. But yeah, um, the symbol is much different than the living, breathing thing. And um, you know, the Danny's dragons are really just the avatar of that power.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like the touch that the hilt is dragon bone because it's like the Valerians had a part in this too. It's mm-hmm. not all the Giskari. We shouldn't blame all the slavery on the Giskari. The Valerians established the slave trade for 5,000 years, and they created a slave trade economy that persisted after their empire crumbled. So they're a part of this, too. Um, and, and that's what I think the message is there. Yeah. So a moment later, we read Go ahead and do the Bricks and Blood.
1: Bricks and Blood built Astapor, Whitebeard murmured at her side, and Bricks and Blood her people. What is that? Danny asked him, curious. An old rhyme a meister taught me when I was a boy. I never knew how true it was. The bricks of Astapor are red with the blood of the slaves who make them. I can well believe that, said Danny. Then leave this place before your heart turns to brick as well. Sail this very night on the evening tide. Would that I could, thought Danny. When I leave Astapor, it must be with an army, Sir Jorah says.
0: So then Barristan, excuse me, Arston says that they can hire swords in the free cities to which danny replies my brother visited pentos mir bravos near all the free cities the magisters and archons fed him wine and promises but his soul was starved to death a man cannot sup from the beggar's bowl all his life and stay a man i had my taste in karth and that was enough i will not come to pentos bowl in hand arston says better to come a beggar than a slaver "'There speaks one who has been neither,' Danny's nostrils flared. "'Do you know what it is like to be sold, squire?' "'I do. "'My brother sold me to Caldrogo for the promise of a golden crown. "'Well, Drogo crowned him in gold, though not as he had wished, "'and I, my son and stars, made a queen of me, "'but if he had been a different man, it might have been much otherwise. "'Do you think I have forgotten how it felt to be afraid?' "'Whitebeard bowed his head. "'Your grace, I did not mean to give offense. "'Only lies offend me, never honest counsel.' Danny patted Arston's spotted hand to reassure him. So this is what I was saying about Danny's temper. Like, she lets a little bit of it out here, appropriately, uh, but doesn't let it control her, and then, you know, sort of moderates it by saying it's okay. Um, you know, only lions offend me. So, interesting line. Because, and it just shows you, like, Danny's got some emotion here. This wasn't that long ago. You know, she hasn't had time to process all of that. So this is still an active wound inside of her, Uh, that feeling of losing your autonomy, she remembers, it's fresh in her mind. And so this passage sort of communicates a little bit of that passion. And, um, you know, she's, like I said, she's right to point out that she was lucky, essentially, to develop a decent relationship with Drogo, which eventually gave her agency, and that many people in her position would have had it far worse. It just would have been straight marital rape with with no increasing agency and no moderation, you know, no sympathy or whatever. So, absolutely it,
1: agree on that. Yeah. That's so, right.
0: it, and it's 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 important to note that Danny understands that. Like, she appreciates that it could have been worse and that it is worse for most other people in her position. So, she doesn't give in to rage like Viserys did, but sort of mitigates her harsh words. Like I said, which is, you know, just she's managing Barriston well here. So, Jorah, however. He did not give her honest counsel. And so she gives more of her rage to him. Because like I said, Jorah did not prepare her and let her walk right into all of this. And so here is the quote of her chewing out Jorah.
1: Sir Jorah Mormont stood waiting for her. Your grace, he said, bowing his head. The slavers have come and gone. Three of them with a dozen scribes and as many (laughs) slaves to lift and fetch. They crawled over every foot of our holds and made note of all we had. He walked her aft. How many men do they have for sale? None. Was it Mormons she was angry with, or this city with its sullen heat? its stinks and sweats and crumbling bricks. They sell eunuchs, not men. Eunuchs made of brick, like the rest of Astapor. Shall I buy 8,000 brick eunuchs with dead eyes that never move, who kill suckling babes for the sake of a spike hat and strangle their own dogs? They don't even have names, so don't call them men, sir. Khaleesi, he said, taken aback by her fury. The Unsullied are are chosen as boys and trained. I have heard all I care to of their training. Danny could feel tears welling in her eyes, sudden and unwanted. Her hand flashed up and cracked, Sir Jorah hard across the face. It was either that or cry. Mormont touched the cheek she slapped. If I have displeased my queen... You have! You've displeased me greatly, sir. If you were my true knight, you would never have brought me to this vile sty. As your grace commands... I shall tell Captain Grolio to make ready to sail on the evening tide for some sty less vile.
0: I love that line right there, by the way. It's so funny.
1: (laughs) No, said Danny. Grolio watched them from the forecastle, and his crew was watching, too. Whitebeard, her blood riders, Jiki, everyone who had stopped what they were doing at the sound of the slap. I want to sail now, not on the tide. I want to sail far and fast and never look back. But I can't, can I? There are 8,000 brick eunuchs for sale, and I must find some way to buy them. And with that, she left him and went below.
0: So then a bit later, evening on the ship, um, as dust settled over Slaver's Bay, she's standing by the rail, and she's looking at Astapor from here. It looks almost beautiful. The stars were coming out, silk lanterns, blotty, blotty. But she says, But it is dark below, in the streets and plazas and fighting pits, and it is darkest of all in the barracks, where some little boy is feeding scraps to the puppy they gave him when they took away his manhood. So the, all this is fresh in her mind. And to get back to that question we had of why she frees the slaves, like, George is giving you the insight right here. Follow what her train of thought. Follow what she's thinking about and what's moving her. So then um, Jora comes up behind her meekly, may I speak frankly, so Danny did not turn. She could not bear to look at him now. Say what you will, sir. "'When Aegon the dragon stepped ashore in Westeros, "'the kings of Vale and Rock and Reach "'did not rush to hand him their crowns. "'If you mean to sit the Iron Throne, "'you must win it as he did, with steel and dragon fire, "'and that will mean blood on your hands "'before the thing is done.' "'Blood and fire, Danny thought. "'The words of House Targaryen. "'She had known them all her life. "'The blood of my enemies I will shed gladly. "'The blood of innocence is another matter. "'8,000 unsullied they would offer me. "'8,000 dead babies. "'8,000 strangled dogs.' "'Your grace,' said Jorah Mormont. "'I I saw King's Landing after the sack. "'Babes were butchered that day as well, "'and old men and children at play. "'More women were raped than you can count. "'There is a savage beast in every man, "'and when you hand that man a sword or a spear "'and send him forth to war, the beast stirs. "'The scent of blood is all it takes to wake him. "'Yet I have never heard of these unsullied raping, "'nor putting a city to the sword, nor even plundering, "'save at the express command of those who lead them. "'Brick they may be, as you say, "'but if you buy them henceforth, "'the only dogs they'll kill—' are those you want dead. And you do have some dogs you want dead, as I recall, the usurpers' dogs. So you can see the driving forces here. She needs soldiers, and these soldiers happen to serve the cruelest masters imaginable and seem like they could use a bit of liberating. So need and empathy um, and a desire to right injustice, in other words, are all coming together. The idea that the Unsullied aren't the type to rape and pillage is basically a bonus— And may help mitigate the potential hostility that Westeros will have for "quote unquote" foreign soldiers. It probably helps any um, probably helps Danny lock on to the idea that yes, she really should try to to find these soldiers, as they would be effective. They'll be well controlled um, because you remember she's constantly worried about the Dothraki and the dragons laying waste. To Westeros, up to now, because because she doesn't want that, right? Because she doesn't want to turn Westeros into a charnel pit. Okay, thanks. Anyways, um, so <laughs> after Danny expresses her emotion over the cruel treatment of the Unsullied, she switches gears and then begins asking Jorah questions that are designed to help her refine her evolving plan. And and again, this is the one too that shows us her thinking. She's thinking about the kids with their puppies and all of that. And then she pivots to start asking Jorah questions about forming her plan. So go ahead and take it away.
1: You speak of sacking cities. Answer me this, sir. Why have the Dothraki never sacked this city? She pointed. Look at the walls. You can see they've begun to crumble. There and there. Do you see any guards on those towers? I don't. Are they hiding, sir? I saw these sons of the harpy today. They dressed in linen skirts and the fiercest thing about them was their hair. Even a modest khalasar could crack this astapor like a nut and spill out the rotten meat inside. So tell me, why is that ugly harpy not sitting beside the God's Way and face Dothrak among the other stolen gods? You have a dragon's eye, Khaleesi. That's plain to see. I wanted an answer, not a compliment. There are two reasons. Astapor's brave defenders are so much chaff it's true old names and fat purses who dress up as Giskari scourges to pretend they still rule a vast empire. Everyone is a high officer. On feast days, they fight mock wars in the pits to demonstrate what brilliant commanders they are, but it's the eunuchs who do the dying. All the same, any enemy waiting to sack Astapor would have to know that they'd be facing Unsullied. The slavers would turn out the whole garrison in the city's defense. The Dothraki have not ridden against Unsullied since they left their braids at the gates of Khoror.
0: Again, we're talking about Danny formulating the plan. So like I said, on the reread, it really stuck out to me. um, It stuck out to me, not struck out. It stuck out to me how early on Danny is formulating the plan. Like I said, as soon as she hears about the cruelty, she's asking questions about will they turn on me? Basically, she's trying to figure out, can I use them against you somehow? If I offer them freedom, will they turn on you? Okay, well, if I buy them can I then use them against you? But she's asking all those questions in reverse to disguise her true intent and saying, will they turn on me if someone tries to turn them against me or whatever? Um, So it's very, very clever. And um, the part here that she's asking is twofold, right? She says she's asking about why the Dothraki have never sacked Astapor because she's thinking about sacking Astapor. And so she's asking Jorah, without giving away her plan, what the reasons are. So... Essentially the first one is that the unsullied themselves are the the primary physical defense of the city. The walls are basically shit, but anybody who attacks the city knows they'd be attacking unsullied. Nobody wants to mess with unsullied. However, if Danny can gain control of the unsullied, then there's nothing stopping her from using them to sack Astapor and free the slaves except for the second point. So, here's the second bit is um oh before we get to that, right? I did want to highlight this line which I think is a total boss line, Melanie. Absolutely love it. So tell me, why is that ugly harpy not sitting beside the godsway in Vase Dothrak among the other stolen gods? Like, isn't that what we do here? Don't we tear down these idols and, like, drag them back to Vase Dothrak? Like, what... Mm-hmm. what why, why have we not done this? So...
1: A little snark. I like it, too. I like the
0: energy there, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then, <laughs> this is basically... This is the Mama Dragon energy. You know, she's... Her empathy... She's already adopting... Basically, any downtrodden person that she comes across as her child, she's already thinking about the slaves and the young boys and thinking about defending them somehow because that's her archetype. She is the Mama Dragon. So, here is the second reason why nobody ever sacks Astapor.
1: And the second reason, Danny asked, who would attack Astapor? Sojourner asked. Marine and Young Kai are rivals, but not enemies. "'The doom-destroyed Valyria, the folk of the eastern hinterlands, "'are all Ghiscari, and beyond them, and beyond the hills, lies lies Lazar. "'The lambmen, as your Dothraki call them, are notably unwarlike people.' "'Yes,' she agreed. "'But north of the slave cities is the Dothraki Sea, "'and two dozen mighty cows who like nothing more than sacking cities "'and carrying off their people into slavery.' "'Carrying them off where? "'What good are slaves once you've killed the slavers?' Valeria is no more, Karth lies beyond the red waste, and the nine free cities are thousands of leagues to the west. And you may be sure the sons of the harpy give lavishly to every passing cow, just as the magisters do in Pentos and Norvos and Mir. They know that if they feast the horse lords and give them gifts, they will soon ride on. It's cheaper than fighting, and a deal more certain. Cheaper than fighting, Danny thought. Yes, it might be. If only it could be that easy for her. How pleasant it would be to sail to King's Landing with her dragons and pay the boy Joffrey a chest of gold to make him go away.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Pat Riley. He fell out of his chair trying to pet his cat, so I had to give him especially like a (laughs) lurchy sound for that. Uh, But you can follow Danny's thinking pretty easily here. Two things are protecting the slavers: the unsullied, who she's about to take control of, and the slave trade itself. But here's the thing: Danny has no desire to preserve the slave trade. In fact, she has just the opposite. What good are slaves once you've killed the? Uh, what good are slaves once you've killed the slavers? Jora asks, but Danny is thinking the exact reverse. What need have we for slavers if we don't need slaves anymore? And the answer is none. So if she can wrest control of the Unsullied from the Masters, there is literally nothing preventing her from toppling the Masters from power. And this is why the strategy of pretending not to understand Valerian's speech and playing it cool has worked out so well. The slavers are assuming that Danny thinks like a Dothraki cow, and that she may want to buy more Unsullied in the future, or sell captives to them that, they, that she'll take as slaves in the future, and so they're overconfident, and they don't see the Dragon's Wrath coming. This passage is from a third chapter, as the good masters give Danny advice about the Unsullied right before they do the deal. And they're saying, and should she take captives, a few guards will suffice to march them back to Astapor. We'll buy the healthy ones. And who knows, in 10 years, some of the boys she sends us may be Unsullied in their turn. So they completely, just like you said, Melanie, they completely did not pick up on her revulsion. And they're assuming that she'll be happy to help them make more Unsullied. So,
1: yeah, totally they are not seeing the they think they're just doing, you know, the regular business deal like you say and yeah, they they've got well, they've got another thing coming.
0: They do. And so I think George is really doing a marvelous job of giving us just enough to follow Danny's thinking and guess her plan, but without revealing all the way what's coming so that it hits as a big surprise when it happens. And on the first read, I really didn't see it coming, but on the reread, like I said, you can, you can see it starting right from the plaza that she's, she's planning this out. So the other thing that's happening in this chapter is the Rhaegar. And no, I'm not talking about my smash hit Rhaegar Witcher mashup parody <laughs> video, although you should check that out if you haven't already. Uh, no, I'm talking about Danny being compared to Rhaegar all through the act of taking the Unsullied from the Good Masters. It's especially heavy in the third chapter that we're about to get to, but it begins here with Jorah's famous... And Rhaegar died, speech. Danny
1: shrugged him off. Viserys would have bought as many Unsullied as he had the coin for. But you once said I was like Rhaegar. I remember Daenerys. Your grace, she corrected. Prince Rhaegar led free men into battle, not slaves. Whitebeard said he dubbed his squires himself and made made many other knights as well. There was no higher honor than to receive your knighthood from the Prince of Dragonstone. Tell me then, when he touched a man on the shoulder with his sword, what did he say? Go forth and kill the weak, or go forth and defend them? At the trident, those brave men Viserys spoke of who died beneath our dragon banners, did they give their lives because they believed in Rhaegar's cause, or because they had been bought and paid for? Danny turned to Mormont, crossed her arms, and waited for an answer. My queen, the big man said slowly, all you say is true. But Rhaegar lost on the trident. He lost the battle, he lost the war, he lost the kingdom, and he lost his life. His blood swirled downriver with the rubies from his breastplate, and Robert, the usurper, rode over his corpse to steal the Iron Throne. Rhaegar fought valiantly, Rhaegar fought nobly, Rhaegar fought honorably, and Rhaegar died.
0: And Rhaegar died. Somebody's saying, I could have called my Witcher Rhaegar video the Rhaegar-er, (laughs) which I like Uh, yes so what we have here is a bit of a fake out if you will from George who's trying to make us think that Danny's going to consider something less honorable something that Rhaegar wouldn't have done which would be buy slave soldiers and thus make herself complicit in the slave trade and the practice of making Unsullied because think about it George could have had her done that like she just buys the Unsullied and tries to rationalize it by saying well I'm going to treat them better, so you know, it's okay that I'm buying them. But if you think about it, she's giving money, she would have been giving money to the slavers, which they would use to Mm -hmm. make more unsullied. So she would have been complicit in the entire thing if she had done that. Um, And I think that's what George is trying to, like I said, sort of mislead us here. He's saying, well, Rhaegar was honorable and he died. So if you don't want to die, you got to do something a little bit less honorable. But, of course, Danny finds a third choice, and the key here is that Danny is distilling down the entire question of knight's honor, which George explores elsewhere in entire characters, like Jamie, Brienne, Sandor Clegane, and Sir Barristan, down into one simple question, which is, are knights meant to defend the weak, or to slaughter them? Yes. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? Did you want to break in?
1: Oh, no. I'm just wholeheartedly agreeing, because I think that that's like the central, just like you said, it's a central question. It, I love that George, this is like one of the things I love about George's writing the most is that he puts these moral questions, he puts them to us and he does it in a way that causes us to really think about it, uh, to slow down and think about it and to uh, take in viewpoints that we necessarily wouldn't think of uh, by giving us these characters that are exceptional or uh, think differently from us. And, uh, you know, like just, Davos's question and yeah the question that you just asked um that's something that I think George does just masterfully
0: in his work. Yep, and we're going to talk about the idea of Danny's concept of justice as we go increasingly. But this is where it starts in in this book, you know, as being a really clear theme. She's asking straight up, you know, what are knights for? So, and she's going to she's going to put that same question to what are kings for in the next chapter or two. She's basically going to say that Robert was no true king because he didn't do justice. And she means to do justice. So anyways, uh, she's, my point is that she's basically redefining honor to be something a bit more like human. It's not about nobility or valiance or chivalry, but rather justice. And so Jorah is saying that Rhaegar was noble and valiant. But what Danny is seeking to bring is justice, even if that's ugly and less than noble. So that is the kind of fake out here, is that Jorah's operating on a different continuum of honor versus dishonor than Daenerys is.
1: Yes, absolutely. He, Like I said, he is the guy that has done something dishonest himself. He's a disgraced knight, and he has that perspective to look at. This situation and acknowledge the ugliness and what she's going to have to do.
0: Yeah, and like I said, we're gonna we're gonna develop the concept of honor a little bit more here in this third chapter, which is where we are now. So, the first words of Danny three are Missende repeating Danny's words back to her. All, meaning you want to buy all the unsullied.
1: Go, Danny. I would said Danny when the question was put to her. The eight thousands, the six centuries, and the ones still in training as well the ones who have not earned the spikes.
0: So this makes sense if you understand that Danny's intent is to end the practice of making Unsullied entirely. She wants every boy who has begun the process, even yesterday, even offering to pay double or triple if she can get every boy in training because she's trying, she aims to shut this thing down altogether. So, uh, yeah, the body does have a way of shutting it down, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Old joke, as from a couple years ago. Anyways... This will be the default. Uh, This, by default, will topple the power structure in Astapor and cause a revolution. And we get that information in the next uh, paragraph here. Go ahead.
1: Danny let them argue, sipping the tart persimmon wine and trying to keep her face blank and ignorant. I will have them all, no matter the price, she told herself. The city had a hundred slave traders, but the eight before her were the greatest. When selling bed slaves, field hands, scribes, craftsmen, and tutors... These men were rivals, but their ancestors had allied with one another for the purpose of making and selling the unsullied. Brick and blood built Astapor, and brick and blood her people.
0: Yes, brick and blood built Astapor, and like I said, so she can see that if she kills these wise masters, that basically they are the power in the city. They are the most powerful people. So she understands that taking them down is going to be more than just uh, just you know killing eight people. There's three cities in Slavers Bay, but Astapor is the one that makes the Unsullied. Um, only Astapor. So that is like the primary thing that organizes culture in Astapor is making the Unsullied. And so when she ends that, it's it's going to upend the power structure. So um, she doesn't. The thing is, she doesn't have anywhere near enough to buy all of the Unsullied. She already knows that, but she draws out the process, allowing them to detail the value of her trade goods and ships only to get to the heart of the plan. Go ahead.
1: Two thousand would never serve for what she meant to do. I must have them all. Danny knew what she must do now, though the taste of it was so bitter that even the persimmon wine could not cleanse it from her mouth. She had considered long and hard and found no other way. It is my only choice. Give me all, she said, and you may have a dragon.
0: And you, Maud Mary, may have a... Tossing a coin to my myth head. Thank you, Modern Mary. I appreciate it. Let's see what do I want to say about this one. So, secret agent Stan objects. He's silenced by Danny, who later tells him, hey, feel free to question my wisdom in private, but never do that in public, which is fairly reasonable. Um, and I suspect that she left Barriston in the dark about her plan because his genuine outrage kind of helped her sell the ruse to the slavers. What do you think, Melanie.
1: Oh, I I definitely think that that's why she didn't say anything to him. I do want to point out um, the idea of this being a very important choice that Danny makes. I think that the theme of choice uh, is something that George likes to discuss a lot or have us think about a lot. Um, You know the line, no chance, no choice. Mm -hmm. Um, This is one of Danny's hardest choices. She's... In a way, Uh, if everything goes to plan, it's not going to be a hard choice. But if something gets messed up, she's giving up one of what she thinks is her three children and basically selling her child into slavery, which is really like a heartbreaking, aching choice. And um, so for her to have the courage and faith in her own uh, plan Really says something, you know the fact that she's willing to give up a dragon in order to free the Unsullied I mean, you know Just going back to like the meta point that we're trying to make that what what we're seeing from book Danny is completely different from what happened in season eight Uh, like I think that this is another really good example of why book Danny is just, like, miles and miles away from show Danny, she is giving up one of her extremely priceless, like, completely irreplaceable children uh, in order to put the lives of 8,000 unsullied, or, you know, give or take a few, um, you know, at, at ease. And I think that says exactly what we're trying to say about her character. I mean, she's not going to... If she's willing to give up one of her children to free... A, You know, I don't want to say like a mere 8,000 people, but, you know, she's willing to do that. That shows us that she is um, definitely going to think twice about burning King's Landing to the ground and is probably not going to be triggered by the bells.
0: (laughs) Well, again and again, (laughs) she puts herself on the line for her people. Mm -hmm. That's it. And it fits in with with that train of thought. So, yeah. Um, Now, Josh Thompson makes a good point slightly ahead of where we are, but he says the slave masters never asked about whether or not the dragon would obey them, unlike Danny, who made sure the Unsullied would obey her. That is a very good point because the whole trickery here depends on the idea that the slavers are overconfident that they'll be able to control the dragon. Danny hands them the dragon leash, but Drogon doesn't budge. She takes control of the Unsullied and then says Dracarys, and she knows that the dragon will continue to obey A dragon her. is no slave. That's right, and she asked all these questions, making sure. So the so once I have them, I can attack anyone, right? And they're not yours anymore, right? And okay, okay, you know. So because she asked Miss Sanday questions too um, about that as well. So very good point, Josh Thompson. The slave masters were overconfident in many ways and set themselves up for what they got. Uh, so <laughs> let's see here. Let's do throw in a little, just a dash of symbolism. We're still doing character analysis, but there's a little bit of symbolism here. So check out the subtle other symbolism. I'm going to read this one, Melanie. All your goods, save your crown and your queenly raiment, which we will allow you to keep. The three ships and Drogon. Done, she said in the common tongue. Done, the old Grasdane answered in his thick Valerian. The others echoed that old man of the pearl fringe. Done, the slave girl translated, and done, and done, eight times done. So as I mentioned. The idea of Danny slaying the masters and freeing the slaves with dead eyes is foreshadowing. Of Danny slaying the others and freeing the trapped souls of the whites. So, a huge, gigantic mega clue about this, more than just, you know, calling the slave masters the others through a others' double entendre, comes here in this next passage when Danny tries to sleep later that night and has this dream.
1: That night she dreamt that she was Rhaegar, riding to the trident, but she was mounted on a dragon, not a horse. When she saw the usurper's rebel host across the river, they were armored all in ice, but she bathed them in the dragon fire, and they melted away like dew and turned the trident into a torrent. Some small part of her knew that she was dreaming, but another part exulted. This is how it was meant to be. The other was a nightmare, and I have only now awakened. She woke suddenly in the darkness of her cabin, still flush with triumph. Valerian seemed to wake with her, and she heard the faint creak of wood, water lapping against the hull, a footfall on the deck above her head, and something else. Someone was in the cabin with her. Erie, Jiggy? Where are you? Her handmaids did not respond. It was too black to see, but she could hear them breathing. Jora, is that you? They sleep, a woman said. They all sleep. The voice was very close. Even dragons must sleep. She is standing over me. Who's there? Danny peered into the darkness. She thought she could see a shadow, the faintest outline of a shape. What do you want of me? Remember, to go north, you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Quaith? Danny sprung from the bed and threw open the door. Pale yellow lantern light flooded the cabin, and Eerie and Jiki sat up sleepily. Khaleesi? Khaleesi? murmured Shiki, rubbing her eyes. Vizarian woke and opened his jaws, and a puff of flame brightened even the darkest corners. There was no sign of a woman in a red lacquer mask. Khaleesi, are you unwell? asked Jiki. A dream. Danny shook her head. I dreamed a dream, no more. Go back to sleep. All of us go back to sleep. Yet try as she might, sleep would not come again.
0: Here's what I want to point out, that this is actually fairly straightforward as far as prophetic symbolic visions go. Okay, so follow this. She dreams of fighting her own version of the Trident, except that it seems more like a battle against the others, right? Her foes are armored in ice like the others, and they melt under the dragon fire as we expect the others to do, regardless of show canon. This dream may well have been influenced or implanted by Quaithe, of course, who is using a glass candle to project herself into Danny's mind and to, you know, speak to her? That's what happens here. When Danny wakes, and it feels like Quaid is in the room, and it sounds like she's in the room, but she's not actually there. That's astral projection by means of glass candle. And what am I trying to say? It's possible to use glass candles to implant dreams or to mess with people's dreams. We're, we're given that information later. I think it's in *A Dance with Dragons*. Um, so, all of Danny's dreams are somewhat suspect. That's basically what I'm trying to say. However, we should notice that it resonates with Danny, Even if it was sent by Quave, when she feels that feeling of melting people with dragons, melting ice-armored warriors, it resonates. This is how it was meant to be. The other was a nightmare, and I have only now awakened, which is more other wordplay. The other was a nightmare. Good thing I have dragons. So it's (laughs) as if George wants us to think about the others who are nightmares come to life right, as Danny melts ice-armored foes with dragon fire. You guys know how this works. But here's, here's the really big point I want to make. She has this dream of fighting her own battle of the Trident, and then she's about to free the Unsullied and turn them against the Masters, and she's thinking, it's time to cross the Trident. So she's comparing this dream of the Others to the Trident, and she's comparing freeing the Unsullied to the Trident battle. So if you put them together... What do you have? You have Danny fighting the others and somehow freeing slaves at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I'm saying is going to happen if she slays the others and it leads to a liberation of the whites, you know, like I'm saying it does or or will. Because I think that the whites, Melanie, do have some little bit of like their soul trapped in their body. Like it's 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 less of a horror if it's literally just the corpse. But we
1: I absolutely agree with you on that. I mean, yeah. George gives us other examples of similar-ish types of things when, you know, the greens—or excuse me—when Bran skin changes, all of the other creatures, and hears the echoes of the other children of the forest that were in the inside before. Um, yeah, I, I think George is using those examples as a way to like kind of hint that the whites. Maybe have like that little bit of themselves locked away, kind of like Hodor when Bran takes over his brain.
0: Um, I think it's probably a yeah, lot like that. Like, yeah,
1: same idea.
0: And at the very least, it's like let let these bodies you know rest. You know, yeah. so
1: gosh, yeah. they've been through enough, darn it all. They're falling to pieces.
0: Tony thirty four eighty three says Alyssa Farman as Quave would be a god level retcon. Totally agree. Really hope that that's what happens. Love that theory. It really explains why Quave is so <laughs> interested in Danny. So. We'll see. We are going to talk about uh, Quave more either in the next one, the Dance of Dragons one, or in the sort of symbolism and magic foreshadowing Capper episode that I've got planned. Um, but we will start talking about that. Right here we should notice something about Quave, is that she's... She, notice the sequence of events here. She dreams about slaying the others, and then Quave appears and says, well, to go north you must go south, to go west you must go east. So... F- just follow that. Again, it's very straightforward. Danny needs to go west and north. So, what does that mean? She needs to go to Westeros and then she needs to go north and fight the others. That's her destiny, the thing she just dreamed about. So, it's just, again, more foreshadowing of where Danny's arc is leading to. The pinnacle, the climax of it is going north, not going north and then coming back down to fight Cersei. Like, that's it's going to be King's Landing first. And then going north, and I really feel strongly that that is going to be the last part of her arc. So, anyways, all this comparison to the Trident is also, again, more of her comparing herself to Rhaegar and all that stuff. So, when we return to Astapor here in the chapter narrative, George throws in, besides all the Rhaegar talk, a reference to Aegon the Conqueror after Danny chastises Barristan for questioning her in the middle of negotiations. Go ahead.
1: I am not a child, she told him, I am a queen. Yet even queens can err. The Astaporians have cheated you, your grace. A dragon is worth more than any army. Aegon proved that 300 years ago upon the field of fire. I know what Aegon proved. I mean to prove a few things of my own.
0: And indeed she does. I think we are also meant to think about what Dany is doing here, in Slaver's Bay, as instructive as to what she might do in Westeros. To the extent that she conquers Westeros she will attempt to protect the people as her own, to protect the weak, which, again, will eventually necessitate her throwing all of her dragon power against the others. And that's how we know that she's going to figure that out, because her priority, her whole concept of ruling, is to use power to protect people. So once she gets to Westeros and talks to Jon and realizes the threat that the others pose, her values and her logic dictate that she will then... Protect the people by going north, and I think Stannis's uh, logic, well, Stannis and Davos's reasoning is a foreshadowing of Danny's reasoning. So think about it. Stannis is thinking about trying to be king, right? He fails at taking Dragonstone or taking King's Landing, comes back to Dragonstone and licks his wounds, and Davos finds that letter from the Night's Watch, and then they go north to help the Night's Watch against the Wildlings and eventually the others. And so, and then there's this important line where Stannis says. I realized that if I wanna be king, I needed to do the job first. I needed to protect the people, and that would make me king, not just demanding it and taking King's Landing. So George is already giving us that, that mental puzzle box mm-hmm. with Stannis, and Danny has is gonna have the exact same friggin' choice. And if you think that Stannis is smarter and more noble than Danny, um, then you're listening to the wrong podcast. There is a different <laughs> podcast for you whose name we shall not say but it exists, it's out there. You get the point though, right? You agree with me, Mel? You think Danny's gonna figure this one out?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, like really honestly, we have all of the pieces and George is supplying us with all of these pieces. He's lining them all up for us and saying like, look, here are the pieces that Danny is made of. They fit together really nicely and we could try to jam something else in there, but it's not going to fit.
0: Um,
1: yeah, I, I'm definitely on the agreement on this one.
0: And, and of course, if you think about Stannis, that's the whole thing that makes him likable. If he had not have done that choice and gone north, then he just would have been a selfish, he would have been just another one of those rats picking at the, the woman's body of Westeros in Danny's dream, right? The rat-faced dwarves, mm-hmm. I guess is what they were. Um, but Stannis is a little bit better than that, and the fact that he goes north is like it shows us. Like even though he's got problems, and even though he's stiff and all this, like he does, he's trying to do the right thing. Even though he's like kind of burning people alive once in a while, like ultimately he's he's figuring out a certain thing about kingship that Danny has to think about too. So Stannis is a mixed bag. I like him as a character, um, but that's that's the main thing about his character that like speaks for him is that decision. So. And, all right, so next I want to highlight a quick book to show difference. In the show, Danny asks for Miss Missandei to be thrown into the deal in a slightly callous way, and it sort of rubbed me the wrong way when I watched it. Um, but in the books, it's the opposite. It's suggested by the masters. It says, "'The Unsullied will learn your savage tongue quickly enough, uh, when all, um, "'but until such time as you need a slave to speak to them, "'take this one as our gift, a token of a bargain well-struck.' "'I shall,' said Danny." The slave girl rendered his words to her and hers to him. If she had feelings about being given for a token, she took care not to let them show. So the the show doesn't have that, yeah, exactly, it doesn't have that beat of, of you know, this was very well written to say, like, Sande is so, has slave culture, like, ingrained into her that it doesn't even flash across her face that she just got given away like that, um... And this is followed up really nicely by Danny's conversation with Miss Ande later in this chapter.
1: Miss Ande is no longer a slave. I free you from this instant. Come ride with me in the litter, I wish to talk. Ricero helped them in, and Danny drew the curtains shut against the dust and heat. If you stay with me, you will serve as one of my handmaids, she said as they set off. I shall keep you by my side for me, as you spoke for Krasnus. "'But you may leave your, my service whenever you choose. "'If you have father or mother, you would sooner return to. "'This one will stay,' the girl said. "'This one, I... there is no place for me to go. "'This, I, I will serve you gladly. "'I can give you freedom, but not safety,' Danny warned. "'I have a world to cross and wars to fight. "'You may go hungry. You may grow sick. You may be killed.'" Valar Morghulis. Said Miss Andy in High Valerian. All men must die. Danny agreed, but not for a long while. We may pray. She leaned back on the pillows and took the girl's hand.
0: So, just a very tender scene. I don't have any like super deep point here. Just want to show these humanizing moments. This is our first experience with Danny freeing a slave and then t- seeing how she treats them afterward. Um, so, it's just a very good example. And um, she goes on as a, later. There's a uh, there's a point where she promises to take Missande home and says that I hope, to get, you know, hope to see your aisles one day. And so I, I don't, um, I, like I said, I think Danny is going to die against the others, but I hope George put, gets Missande back to Nath or he hits, it uh, hits that beat somehow. That would really be nice. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So we won't talk about the show at all at this point. And... I was going to say, I think like, I, I was going to say,
1: I think after watching the show that, all of us who liked Miss Sandy, like we were rooting for the Miss Sandy Grey Worm relationship to work, and then to just like have that crumble and to have Miss Sandy, and the way she did was just like, for me, it was really heartbreaking because she was like one of like the purest characters. Yeah, you know, she's just too pure for this world of Westeros.
0: Pretty sure that one won't be uh won't be the same. So, hopefully, all right. So. Danny proceeds to ask Masende more questions about the Unsullied, about how much pain they feel, if they really obey as described, and then she asks a very important question to make sure her plan is going to work, which is, if I did resell them, how would I know they could not be used against me? Would they do that? Fight against me? Even do me harm? If their master commanded, they do not question your grace. All the questions have been called from them. They obey. So this is George's last clue to the reader about what's about to happen. Danny is once again asking the question in reverse to disguise her intent. She's really asking, once I buy the instillated from the masters, will they obey me if I command them to slay the masters? And Miss Sandy reassures her that yes, once they are yours, they are yours, and their former owners enjoy no special protection. That's, that's the point here. So that night, she walks up on the deck alone, and Jor approaches, and Danny voices some of her inner thoughts to him.
1: Do you remember Errol? She asked him. The Lazarine girl? They were raping her, but I stopped them and took her under my protection. Only when my son in stars was dead, Mago took her back, used her again, and killed her. Ago said it was her fate. I remember, Sir Jora said. I was alone for a long time, Jora, All alone, but for my brother. I was such a small, scared thing. Sarah should have protected me, but instead, he hurt me and scared me worse. He shouldn't have done that. He wasn't just my brother he was my king why do the gods make kings and queens if not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves some kings make themselves Robert did he was no true king Danny said scornfully he did no justice justice that's what kings are for Sir Jura had no answer he only smiled and touched her hair so lightly it was enough
0: Jura. well in this in this case when it says it was enough, it, it what what the the point is here is that Danny is distilling down to her decision making here, and when she sees Jorah smile and not object to it, that's like that is the confirmation that she's looking for, and so you could almost take this not in a creepy way, but of course it is Jorah, so it's creepy. He's but. Still,
1: <laughs> he, he had to touch her. Yeah, of you course, know? yes, he had to touch her.
0: But but of course, the 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 main point here is. You know, he scared me worse. He shouldn't have done that. He wasn't just my brother. He was my king. Why do the gods make kings and queens if not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves? So this is another one of those lines that you just want to like scream at D&D or like inscribe (laughs) on a brick and throw through their window or something like, (laughs) did you read this part or what? So this is is probably a good point here to stop and... um, talk about liberation ideology for just a second because Danny's basically embracing it here. She's saying, well, here, okay, so here's this quote. I shared it on Twitter today. There is a higher law than the law of government, and that is the law of conscience. That quote comes from Kwame Ture, born Stokely Carmichael, who was, and I'm quoting this from Wikipedia, prominent American socialist organizer in the civil rights movement in the United States and the global pan-African movement, Born in Trinidad, he grew up in the United States from the age of 11 and became an activist while attending Howard University. So um, he eventually developed the Black Power Movement, first while leading the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, called the SNCC, later serving as the Honorary Prime Minister of the Black Panther Party, and lastly as a leader of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. And the point of this is to give you the context of where that quote comes from. Kwame Ture was talking about laws in the United States which rendered black people as less than white people in many ways, uh, when he said that the law of conscience is higher than the law of the government. So, said another way, unjust laws are unjust, and there comes a time to disobey them. And ultimately, civil disobedience was one of the key factors to enacting civil rights legislation, thus, making the laws of the government more closely align with those of conscience. So think about this in the context of Danny's decision to quote unquote double cross the good masters. That's the sticking point of her plan. In order to pull it off, she's got to do a little bit of deception regarding Drogon. She sells Drogon to the masters and hands them the handle, but knows full well that he will not come to them and that will that he'll obey Danny when she says Dracarys. And we've covered the fact that you know, hey, the masters were foolish here, but still, like, there's a little bit of deception, double crossing that's going on. But Danny doesn't care about the technicalities of trade customs and the laws of slavers. The higher law is that of conscience. And what the slavers do to the boys who become unsullied is written to be very obviously unconscionable. So what Danny's deciding is that if she's going to be a queen, a conqueror, and a dragon lord, that she is going to do justice. And if the laws of man are unjust, then they have to go. And that's, that's what this boils down to here. So I will stop and let you pipe in there.
1: No, I am one hundred percent on board with it. Um I, I think that making that comparison is is very fair. Um and I like the tie into civil disobedience and yeah, I think that Danny was faced with a choice and she in this case made the right choice. Like I think we can at this point in twenty twenty all agree that Danny's choice to um, treat people kindly and treat people equally is the right choice. And it's the choice that we should all be making. And um, yeah, I I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah, so this is... And and again, it's not just, again, taking the Unsullied, but she's she's killing the masters. She's going to leave different people in charge. And like I said, we'll probably have to take the discussion of what she does in power to a future one. But... The point is that this, she's, she's. if you want to use a metaphor, she is ending the practice of unsullied root and stem. She is cutting <laughs> off the whole thing, if you will. Ending the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's right there. So as we are going to the battle, we get another call out to Rhaegar and the Trident. Go ahead and read this one.
1: Today she wrote her silver, clad in horsehair pants and painted leather vest. "'a broad medallion belt about her waist, "'and two more crossed between her breasts. "'Ery and Jiggy had braided her hair "'and hung it with a tiny silver bell "'whose chimes sang of the Undying of Karth, "'burned in their palace of dust. "'I ought to have a banner sewn,' she thought, "'as she led her tattered band up along Astapor's meandering river. "'She closed her eyes to imagine how it would look, "'all flowing black silk, "'and on it the three-headed dragon of the Targaryen, "'breathing golden flames. "'A banner such as Rhaegar might have borne, The river's banks were strangely tranquil, the worm, the Astapori called the stream. It was wide and slow and crooked, dotted with tiny wooded islands. She glimpsed children playing on one of them, darting amongst elegant marble statues. On another island, two lovers kissed in the shade of tall green trees, with no more shame than Dothraki at a wedding. Without clothing, she could not tell if they were slave or free.
0: So two things here. Rhaegar fought his battle on a river, the Trident, of course. And then here, Danny is thinking about heading to battle like Rhaegar did and carrying a banner like he would as she goes by a river. So it's a nice little parallel. Uh, And then, second, we see that uh, the the whole you can't tell rich from poor or slave from free when everyone is naked concept that George also employs at the water gardens in Dorne. It's basically just a little reminder of what all this is about human rights, basic equality. All humans are created equal. You know, George wants us to have this clear in our minds when we watch Danny take action so that we know what this is really about. So we get one last reminder of the cruelty of the slave culture here, even beyond the unsullied. Um, I'll go ahead and read this one. It's pretty horrible. Uh, (laughs) There were no bronze statues here, only a wooden platform where rebellious slaves were racked and flayed and hanged. The good masters placed them so they will be the first thing a new slave sees upon entering the city, Missende told her as they came to the plaza. At first glimpse, Danny thought their skin was striped like the zorses of the Jogos Nai. She rode her silver near and saw that the red flesh beneath the crawling black stripes flies, flies, and maggots. The rebellious slaves had been peeled like a man might peel an apple in a long curling strip. One man had an arm black with flies from fingers to elbow and red and white beneath. Danny reined him behind beneath him. What did this one do? He raised a hand against his owner, her stomach roiling. Danny wheeled her silver about and trotted towards the center of the plaza and the army she bought so dear. So basically, Danny is like taking one last glimpse of this horror, and she immediately wheels her horse and she's like, okay, let's do this. These people have to go. You know, it's so, it's just that last little beat. Now, Mel, uh, for this penultimate dramatic reading here, um, I was thinking that you will do the Daenerys lines. And I will read the narration and the one or two slaver lines. And that oh, way we can bring it to life. If
1: I think we can make it happen.
0: Yeah. Are you good right now or do you have any kids murdering each other in the background? Or are you good? For...
1: I, I think we're okay. <laughs> well,
0: I mean, obviously you never know and can't predict the future, but...
1: I wish okay. I could sometimes.
0: So, here it is. Finally, there were no more trade goods to add to the pile. Her Dothraki mounted their horses once more and Danny said,
1: This was all we could carry. The rest awaits you on the ships, a great quantity of amber and wine and black rice. And you have the ships themselves, so all that remains is...
0: The dragon, finished Grazden with the spiked beard, who spoke the common tongue so thickly.
1: And here he waits.
0: Sir Jora and Belwis walked beside her to the litter, where Drogon and his brothers lay basking in the sun. Jiki unfastened one end of the chain and handed it down to her. She gave a yank, and the black dragon raised his head, hissing, and unfolded wings of night and scarlet. Krasna's Monaclaws smiled broadly as their shadow fell across him. He's not very good with foreshadowing, is he? <laughs> foreshadowing? Get it? Get it? <laughs> Danny handed the slaver the end of Drogon's chain. In return, he presented her with the whip. The handle was black dragon bone, elaborately carved and inlaid with gold. Nine long, thin leather lashes trailed from it, each one tipped by a gilded claw. The gold pommel was a woman's head, with pointed ivory teeth. The harpy's fingers, Krasniz named the scourge. Danny turned the whip in her hand. Such a light thing to bear such weight.
1: Is it done, then? Do they belong to me?
0: It is done, he agreed, giving the chain a sharp pull to bring Drogon down from the litter. Danny mounted her silver. She could feel her heart thumping in her chest. She felt desperately afraid. Was this what my brother would have done? She wondered if Prince Regar had been this anxious when he saw the usurper's host formed up across the trident with all their banners floating on the wind. She stood in her stirrups and raised the harpy's fingers above her head for all the unsullied to see.
1: It is done!
0: She cried at the top of her lungs.
1: You are mine!
0: She gave the mare her heels and galloped along the first rank, holding the fingers high.
1: You are the dragons now. You're bought and paid for. It is done. It is done.
0: She glimpsed old Grazda and turned his gray head sharply. He hears me speak Valerian. The, the other slavers were not listening. They crowded around Krasniz and the dragon, shouting advice. You can just picture that. It's like, how many slavers does it take to screw in a light bulb? And they're like, <laughs> no, you gotta do this. No, maybe a few, maybe a few. Anyways, so they crowded around Krasniz and the dragon, shouting advice. Though the Astapora yanked and tugged, Drogon would not budge off the litter. Smoke rose grey from his open jaws, and his long neck curled and straightened as she snapped at the slaver's face. It is time to cross the trident, Danny thought, and she wheeled and rode her silver black er her silver back. Uh yes, sorry, typo. Danny thought as she wheeled and rode her silver back. Her blood riders moved in close around her.
1: You are in difficulty.
0: He will not come, Krasnus said.
1: There is a reason. A dragon is no slave.
0: And Danny swept the lash down as hard as she could across the slaver's face. Krasnus screamed and staggered back, the blood running red down his cheeks into his perfumed beard. The harpy's fingers had torn his features half to pieces with one slash, but she did not pause to contemplate the ruin. Drogon! She sang out loudly, sweetly, all her fear forgotten. Drakaris. The black dragon spread his wings and roared. A lance of swirling dark flame took Krasna's full in the face. His eyes melted and ran down his cheeks, and the oil in his hair and beard burnt so fiercely into the fire that for an instant the slaver wore a burning crown twice as tall as his head. The sudden stench of charred meat overwhelmed even his perfume, and his wail seemed to drown out all other sound. Then the plaza of punishment blew apart in blood and chaos— The good masters were shrieking, stumbling, shoving one another aside and tripping over the fringes of their tokars in their haste. Drogon flew almost lazily at Krasna's, black wings beating. As he gave the slaver another taste of fire, Eri and Jiqui unchained Viserion and Rhaegal, and suddenly there were three dragons in the air. When Danny turned to look, a third of Astapor's proud, demon-horned warriors were fighting to stay atop their terrified mounts, and another third were fleeing in a bright blaze of shiny copper. One man kept his saddle long enough to draw a sword, but Jogo's whip coiled around his neck and cut off his shout. Another lost a hand to Ricaro's arak and rode off reeling and spurting blood. Ago sat calmly, notching arrows to his bowstring and sending them at Tokar's. Silver, gold, or plain, he cared nothing for the fringe. Strong Belwis had his arach out as well, and he spun it as he charged. "'Spears!' Danny heard one Astapori shout. "'It was Grasden. Old Grasdan in his heavy Tokar with pearls. Unsullied! Defend us! Stop them! Defend your masters! Spears! Swords! When Ricaro put an arrow through his mouth, the slaves holding his sedan chair broke and ran, dumping him unceremoniously on the ground. The old man crawled to the first rank of eunuchs, his blood pooling on the bricks. The Unsullied did not so much as look down to watch him die. Rank on rank, they stood, and did not move. The
1: gods have heard my prayer. Unsullied.
0: Danny galloped before them, her silver-gold braid flying behind her, her bell chiming with every stride.
1: Slay the good masters, slay the soldiers, slay every man who wears a tokar or holds a whip, but harm no child under twelve, and strike the chains off every slave you see.
0: She raised the harpy's fingers in the air, and then she flung the scourge aside. Freedom! She sang out.
1: Dracarys! Dracarys!
0: And then everyone together, Drakaris! They shouted back, <laughs> the sweetest words she'd ever heard. Drakaris! Drakaris! And all around, the slavers ran and sobbed and begged and died. And the dusty air was filled with spears and fire. There we go. <laughs> Woo!
1: That was pretty awesome. That's,
0: doesn't get any better than that, man.
1: Freeing the slaves. Oh my gosh.
0: I like how George keeps putting in this shit about the perfume. Like, the smell of burning flesh finally overwhelmed that nasty perfume. Like, it's just, it's so stinky. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've all been there in the room with the person that has too much perfume, and it's just like...
0: <laughs> and yes, shout out to both Mel Gibson, freedom! And also <laughs> Zach De La Rocha, freedom! <laughs> yeah! So, all the freedoms. There we go. Pretty exciting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, we are at two <laughs> two hours and 15 minutes... But let's go ahead and tease the conversation that comes next, which is of course what comes after Mm -hmm. this glorious moment, overthrowing the slavers, freeing the unsullied. Um, You know, she she has to then she takes um, young Kai and moves on to Marine, and Marine is where it really gets complicated. Um, And particularly, it's the moment that people were talking about in the chat, where. She finds out that there are some slaves that want to sell themselves back into service. In marine, now the thing about that is that it's it's noted that it's only the the well trained slaves. It's the scribes, it's the the teachers, doctors, lawyers. Exactly. It's, it's been, the educated. Yeah, and I'm going to hand this off to you on uh, to talk about the the Roman society that we were talking about. But sure. basically, George is modeling this. Slave culture off of Roman society. And when we first see Astapor, we don't see that as much. We see all these oppressed slaves and we see these horrific masters. We kill the masters. That seems pretty fun and and simple and straightforward. Then as we go to Young Kai and especially Marine, we learn that their culture is organized in such a way that many roles in society that are respected roles are are filled by slaves. And again, this is very much like uh, Roman culture. And so you have scribes and, you know, people that are treated well. They're even in Roman times, they're allowed to make money. And we'll go ahead and dive in, Melanie.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think this was a really interesting comparison to make because, yeah, like you're saying, there was kind of like this subset of slaves that were, they were treated probably better. Um, you know, they lived in circumstances that were much more comfortable than for example, well, something that I wanted to bring up was the difference between the slaves that worked in the um, mines in Valeria and the slaves that are the educated ones that we're, we're talking about right now. Um, in ancient Rome, apparently only the slaves who were considered disobedient or were being punished for some reason were sent to uh, work in mines and do like the really tough menial labor Um, and, but the thing is, there are always people who are, you know, that who are going to, you know, misbehave or be punished for whatever reason, just or unjust. Um, and, um, I think that it bears thinking about the fact that they're, that Danny wants to free them all. Um, you know, she, I'm sort of getting off the rails here. Um, and I want to keep it tight. Um. The, the, slave, the slaves that are treated well are probably going to be in the minority. And the slaves that are, you know, I guess I'm going to say like the hoi polloi, the, the unwashed masses, are going to be probably very grateful for what Danny is doing. And I think part of what makes this whole thing kind of problematic is the fact that as of this moment, we don't see Danny with a plan about what to do with the slaves afterwards. Um, this The slave that is complaining, the educated slave that's complaining is saying like, I want my master to buy me back, but really at the core of what he wants is he just wants that security. And if Danny can come up with some sort of plan or some sort of alternative economy, uh, cause I mean, slavery is an economy. If, if Danny can come up with an alternative economy um, it, would move the thinking from being a slave to being an employee and yeah exactly the the line starts to get blurry
0: when the yeah that was perfect that's exactly what we want to boil this down to like when the slaves are asking to sell themselves back to a master like is what is that exactly like if you because the whole point about slavery is that your autonomy as a human is taken away from you and you are owned by somebody else. You don't get to control all your decisions. You can be executed. You can be sold to someone else. But what what they're doing is they're saying, I want to sell myself into service because I have these skills and I know I'll be treated well by certain people you know, highborn lords that need scribes or whatever. So it starts to get a little blurry there. And and it at first at first read, it's easy to be like, oh, well, these people have Stockholm syndrome; they've been slaves, and they just want to go back to slavery. That's not actually what's happening here. It's just that the only way that they know how to conceive of the position they had is by calling it slavery. But again, they are a different status than the slaves in the mines or the slaves carrying the sedan chairs or the ones that are made into unsullied. And this is very, again, similar to Roman society where there are many, some of the higher up slaves were better off than some of the poorer citizens as far as their standards of living and the food that they eat. Um, Some of the highborn slaves were allowed to make money. And none of that is apologizing for slavery. Obviously, we've moved on beyond that as a global culture. We don't even do versions of slavery anymore. But what's important is to understand the through lines of the economy and the society that exists here in Slavers Bay. And that is why um, Danny is dealing with these problems after overthrowing these cities and overthrowing the masters is because like there needs to be an economy to take place. And this is the big criticism, obviously, you know, she's fifteen, whatever, whatever, but if you if you topple a power structure, it's kind of like a you break it, you bought it kind of a thing. And to Danny's credit, she at least realizes that. The end of this book ends with her deciding to stay in Marine, And she is being very hard on herself. She's saying, I have made a mess. I have brought blood and fire everywhere. I don't even know if I did the right thing. And And she did do the right thing, but she's being very hard on herself. She feels bad about the chaos that she's caused. And she's basically saying, I can't just Sail on to Westeros. I need to stay here and try to stabilize the situation. I don't want it to be like Astapor, where I left three people in charge, walked down the road, and, and they got killed right away. Exactly. And yes. So.
1: Yes. I think, and that, you know, that's another nod to what an amazing character Danny is. The fact that she saw what happened in Astapor, learned from it, grew, and doesn't want to repeat her mistakes. Because... Uh, unlike the D and D version of Danny, who just like is out to kill everybody, Danny truly cares, and she wants to set these people up with a new way to find security and protection and comfort. And yeah, she's not trying to just you know like, oh well, I freed you. Now there you go. She's taking it to heart. She's thinking about these things deeply. And yeah, I really hope that we get a little bit more of that in the winds of winter like what her decision ultimately is considering marine
0: yeah i mean she's coming back to marine so we're going to see that that whole plot mm-hmm. line is not wrapped up yet yeah so let me clean up uh i think a wrong impression that i just gave carl snark, snark is rightly pointing out that human slavery does exist um you could say that it is an all-time high i'm not sure where that research comes from but he's saying there are literally open-air slave markets in africa and the middle east um so there's a lot of things going on. There's human trafficking. There are if you if you look at the conditions that um undocumented immigrants work under in some in the in some of the southern states in those strawberry fields, they're living in little shacks without clean water or health It's it's there are there's a lot of blurry lines as far as human misery and autonomy like well, you know that you chose to cross the border and come work in the strawberry field. Yeah, but you are fleeing what? You know, a war-torn place where you couldn't feed your family, and why is it war-torn? Well, because powers that be in the world are fighting over resources and things like that and government corruption. So, yes, I did not, definitely didn't mean to say that slavery doesn't exist anymore. What I mean is that our values as a society, and maybe I'm speaking more of uh, quote-unquote first world countries, but it is we agree human rights are broadly agreed upon across the world. They're not upheld across the world, but we all recognize the idea that slavery is wrong. Whereas in the ancient world, slavery was accepted by basically decent people, by common people. They just accepted that that is is how our economy functions. We no longer accept that as an acceptable, like we believe in democracy and stuff like that. Now that's not to say that, like I said, that's upheld everywhere. And I really was thinking a little bit, Melanie, about just what I said. About the undocumented immigrants in this country and in other countries in Europe and some of the situations they end up in, where it's like, is that, is that slavery? Is it wage? Like, uh, work? It's, it's a pretty gray area, you <laughs> it, know?
1: It's interesting that you say that because I, uh, miles away, was having a really similar thought. I mean, you know, the kind of, uh, I was thinking about it in terms of like minimum wage and poverty level living. Um, mm-hmm. nope. and how that really is a kind of enslavement because, at if you're living at or below or even really kind of like near the poverty level, you're trapped in a place where you just can't get ahead. You can't, uh, you know, you can't build up the savings. So if something bad happens, you have nothing there to, uh, you know, make it so that you can overcome that, like medical bills or things like that. Chances are you don't have medical insurance. There's a whole, I mean, I think a lot of you probably know that there's like this whole plethora of problems that come from the lack of social services that we have right now in the United States. And um, I I was just thinking about how similar to slavery some employment, you know, actually is. And it kind of made me really sad.
0: Yeah. yeah, and then there's of course even things like private prisons and prison labor, yes. which is basically oh straight up slavery. It's it's it just is. So there's there's definitely we're definitely not like, you know, have rose-colored glasses here, but like I said, what I'm talking about is the the slow arc of justice that Martin Luther King talks about. Gradually over time, we raise the standards of what is supposedly right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um it, broadly speaking, it it waves and, you know, ebbs and flows and all that stuff. But so now that we've rounded out that picture uh, to be a little more complete, that is, like I said, we'll probably have to leave it here and tease the rest of this conversation for A Dance with Dragons. This really is the A Dance with Dragons conversation. Is like her ruling in Marine dealing with the fallout, having a plan for replacing power structure, how she deals with all that. So I'll grab a couple of things from the last couple chapters of Storm that we sort of glossed over here um, and wrap those in with the Dance with Dragons. And uh, yeah, but... Um, It's very complex. It's fun to talk about, and yeah, slay the masters, right? Yeah. (laughs) You have some closing thoughts you would like to add?
1: Uh, No, uh, I think that our discussion that we just did were pretty much my closing thoughts. Um, You know, I guess I'm just gonna repeat that I think that D and D did Danny dirty. Wow, that had a lot of D's. So much alliteration there, and. I'm really looking forward to seeing how George is going to treat her differently because I think that once you build up a character like Danny, you're not just going to throw it all out the window and be like, oh, no, sorry. I I wanted to line up with what the show did because it did that before me. Like, no. That's not going to happen. I just can't live with that possibility.
0: Their logic is kind of boiled down in that horrible Tyrion speech of, of like, well... She killed a bunch of evil people, and we clapped, <laughs> and now she's killing all the good people, so joke's on you. Um, no. There's no, I think that encapsulates the failure to understand, well, a lot of things. Uh, yes. But Daenerys' arc specifically, <sighs> um, human nature, justice, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like you said, you don't create a character like this, have them go through all these lessons to have them get to their climactic moment and then just torpedo all of it like it doesn't <laughs> yeah, that's not yeah like
1: throw away all that work ugh
0: no. it's not good writing and it's that George is a good writer and as you can you can see where this is going you can mm-hmm. see and this also the end of this book um, begins her real uh, draconic navel gazing if you will where she really <laughs> considers am I the mother of monsters what have I done yeah. what am I doing with these dragons you know and it's the very fact that she worries about all that shit should tell you that she's not just going to flip a switch and be like, kill them all, you know.
1: Totally
0: agree. Because if you look at Ares and the way that he got to the place where he was ready to burn them all, it happened over a long time. He was crazy and cruel for years and years and years. And by the time he got to the point where he gave that command, it was perfectly understandable that he did that. But this is not the making of another Aries that we're no. looking at here.
1: No, I don't think so. so. Should should we just have some fun and talk about, we had talked a little bit about um, John coming back wrong. We we're, mm-hmm. were thinking about, okay, That's all well, that. so in, in the show, basically what they're trying to show is like Danny suddenly like going crazy and. Who has the opportunity to do that? John does, because he's coming back. He's been possibly, he's set up for that. We probably can figure out that he's going to get resurrected. Who knows what system of resurrection is going to be used? Who knows what kind of effect that's going to have on his brain or any of his bodily systems? What if John comes back wrong? And what if it's Danny's... What if Danny does fall in love with him but finds out that he is flawed in a way that she can't fix? And instead of that horrific, uh, just like, I love you, uh, like I'm going to stab you in the heart scene that I hate so much. What if it's the other way around and it's really painful but necessary for Danny to kill John? I don't know. I just like thinking about it.
0: I think John's range of possibilities are something like what you're talking about to the cold hands ending. Mm-hmm. where he's so messed up that he can't reintegrate into the world of the living and he ends his days wandering the north like we saw on the show but yeah. not as a happy person chilling with the wildlings but yeah. as the new cold hands so yeah
1: not going not not getting a life a life of peace like it, it would be really int- we were talking about um Danny freeing the slaves and it would be really interesting if da- if oh my gosh it would be really interesting if John ended up as the one taking on that burden and and sort of like Selflessly being enslaved to his own honor or duty or whatever he feels like he needs to have at that moment.
0: Yeah, but it's just once again like it's like we were talking about with Tyrion. The people around Danny, it's just the whole dynamic is different from what they did in the show. Jon's going to be like kind of crazy and wolfish mm-hmm. and maybe unstable, and he might have some of that anger that Barrack has over being resurrected. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tyrion is is going to be. You know, he wants to rape and kill his sister. That's like the thing. It's like his <laughs> mantra. You know, besides where do whores go? Is like I want to rape and kill my sister. So <laughs> like that's that's the Tyrion that we're going to get. He's <laughs> he's focused on revenge on Cersei, mm-hmm. and he'll probably encourage Danny to be violent.
1: Yes, I agree. I definitely agree that Tyrion is going to be the one who encourages Danny to be violent. Mm-hmm. I think that's
0: and a final super chat of the day. Oh. Elliot says. Actually, no, that's not what Elliot says. Elliot says, George compares Danny to people like Joan of Arc, Henry Tudor, and Alexander the Great. I hate when people call her a Nazi or a fascist. Well, of course, if people call her that, they call her that because the show tried to make her into that. But that doesn't fit any of the character that's come before. Even the show character that they made more imperious and demanding still didn't fit. So, yeah, she's, you know, uh, those comparisons are apt. And that's probably some good history, even to get into maybe in uh, the next episode or two, is look up some Joan of Arc stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I saw that article. That was really cool. Thank I'm you, just buddy.
1: laughing at Alicia Kingston's comment that John's going to channel his inner shaggy dog and go wild. Oh,
0: shaggy! <laughs> Original bombastic! <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Okay, guys. Well, thank you very much for coming. Oh, and thank you. Yeah. Watch my Rhaegar Show video if you haven't already. And I'll be back in two weeks to talk more about all this stuff. And Quinn has agreed to join me. So we'll be there to talk Dance with Dragons. And, um, yeah, it's not okay to own people. It is okay <laughs> to kill slavers. There's, there's a, there, there's, I'm planting my flags. It's like if you heard nothing else. <laughs> mm-hmm. But thank you for joining me, Melanie. Um, my pleasure. YouTube, would you like to plug your YouTube channel?
1: Uh, my <laughs> my very sad YouTube channel. Sure, you can find me on YouTube at Melanie Lot Seven, and there is one thing on there. And someday there's going to be more. Someday, I swear it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> teeny tiny. It's 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 just teeny tiny.
1: It's so small.
0: But it's got a couple good videos on there.
1: So.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thanks everyone. Thanks. Uh, see all the thank yous in the uh, chat there. Mm-hmm. So thanks guys.
1: Thank you guys for showing up
0: yep and uh, well thank you for bringing the bird the bird was a big hit um, <laughs> sorry it helped build our audience <laughs> up to about a hundred there I, oh great uh, little see- behind the scenes Melanie probably has some bird poop on the back of her shirt I but, totally um, have
1: whoops bird poop on yeah like right there
0: you yeah. can see it yeah. oh well it's, it's a risk the only thing about bird poop I will say is that bird poop does not smell like cat and dog not shit So at all so that is the nice thing about it but. so on sweet. that note <laughs> see you guys later